Communist Stacks Podcast, your go-to podcast for six decades of music, three albums at a time. Each decade, we cover over 200 albums spanning all musical genres and tastes, from the well-known acts to the cult favorites. Your tour guides on this journey are John, Josh, and Matt, three amateur music podcasters who all share a love of music and a shared quest to hear the next great album. And now, we head into the Stacks. The first day of February, February 1st, 2024, and you're listening to the Communist Acts Music Podcast. John, Josh, and Matt here on duty. Reminder to search Communist Acts Music Podcast on platforms as diverse as YouTube for uh, individual album reviews, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, I guess what used to be Anchor, now Spotify for podcasts, for full episodes, Letterboxd for Josh's uh, audiovisual goodies, and Spotify itself for the playlists of the different songs. And we have some, we have a very interesting show tonight, both album-wise and singles-wise. So we're going to go right into it pretty quickly. Um, before I check in, though, guys, one thing I want to say in the analytics, we just had our 48th state, a listener from our 48th state, so including D.C., now 48 states and D.C. have had at least one listener listen to the show. We're okay. down to two states that have not listened to our show. North Dakota and Nebraska are the only states left. So if huh. you know someone from Nebraska or North Dakota, please encourage them to listen to the show so we can square <laughs> the circle. We also have been listened to by 69 countries, guys. 69. And, mm-hmm. So I thought that was, yeah, you'd like that as well. So What, uh, today, what state joined the union of CTS? Montana. <laughs> okay, so good. Welcome aboard, Montana. <laughs> I have a good buddy in Montana too. What's his excuse? I gotta get on. Uh, okay, all Maybe right. It was him. Well, Maybe <laughs> take forever. Sarah it takes a while for messages to get out there. I think is what yeah. happens. Maybe a yeah. Freeman. That <laughs> 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 was insurrection. That like we led the we led the way to insurrection. Something like that. So, um, you guys seem like you're doing pretty well, right? Is anything any news news and notes for? Hmm. 
news and notes. I like well, so. No. Piano. Well, radio silence. Oh yeah, how's the piano, Josh? Yeah, piano's just... ongoing. I did, I have not partaken yet, but but Emily's uh, been practicing, taking lessons via the iPad and uh, yeah. or an app, an app on the iPad, and um, yeah, it's going well. She taking lessons from the keyboard cat. Is that what's <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You, so this is like one of those choose your own adventures. Do you want the supportive comment from me, or do you want the cynical comment from me? Well, always the supportive from you, because okay. we get the cynical cynicism. so much. Josh, yeah. I, admire, <laughs> I admire you. I admire you learning to do that. I've wanted to do that with the bass guitar for a long time. Oh, I, it's not me. It's Emily. So okay. <laughs> I'm not doing anything. <laughs> okay. Well, I admire you being. Supportive the support and possibly of taking that leap. Mm. Yes. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Less than I, did... I would have admired you, though, if you tried playing the piano. So Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I'm playing video games right now, so that's mm. that's taking my time. I saw yeah. a new uh, – I didn't watch it yet, but I saw there's a new uh, documentary, music documentary on Netflix called The Greatest Night in Pop about the We Are the World story with all of the stars in that. So so uh, check it out. It's getting pretty hmm. good reviews. And, who uh, was the actor who was in We Are the World? Like, I remember there is, like, a bunch of musicians, and then famously there is, like, an actor who is not known as a singer. And I'm Don Johnson? Ranking. Dan Aykroyd? Yeah, it might be Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd, yeah, it I think might he be was. Dan Aykroyd, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's who's lo- – I'm lo- looking at the credits of the yeah, people in so it. He's, so he's definitively not known for <laughs> well, I singing. I guess he t- probably thinks of himself as it because he's a blues brother. But, but oh, I, right. I, I also don't understand the Blues Brothers at all. Never have. I don't think yeah. I ever will. So I, I that whatever that is that people connect to, I I don't get it at all. So I agree. Full disclosure. Yeah. Okay. Well, if I watch it, I'll report back and see how it is. Gotcha. I remember the video. Yep. Vividly. I I I think we we mentioned that like both Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan are full Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan. In <laughs> sure that are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, love it. Okay. Well. We are going to start with singles right now because it's a regular episode. So five singles, four albums. Matt, why don't you start us off? What single do you want to go with this week? Let's go with Motown Philly by Boys to Men. I like probably this the song. Best known, probably <laughs> the best known uh, song of this week, although there's some pretty well There's a pretty big no- – yeah, this was – yeah, this was – I mean, this was certainly the biggest artist, right? The most successful commercial artist uh, of, For of sure. the week. Um and uh, yeah, this is kind of where it started off. I definitely remember this video, this album, the song. Um, I think my brother had the album uh, as well, which is kind of interesting because we weren't really—he wasn't not really the uh, the R and B, you know, um, uh, fan. But I always liked this song. That it's got the new jack swing. It's got the, it's got um, really great beats. I love the horns in this song. Um, very upbeat. Like it's got the harmonies that Boys to Men became known for. You got the cameo by Michael Bivens. That's like telling the story of of discovering Boys to Men and making them part of the East Coast family along with BBD and ABC. Um, uh, who I guess they are another bad creation was doing Aisha and Playground and whatever yeah. around this playground. time as well. I swing my beat at the playground. Um, and yeah, I've always I've always liked this. It's just a very uplifting, fun track. Uh, it's probably my favorite Boys to Men song. Um, maybe I will change my mind as we get. I know we're going to be covering, you know, their album. You know that al- the album after this too yeah. is just massive hit, hit after hit after hit. But um, and that you know they certainly became more known as, at least in my world as more of a ballad 
you know, kind of R&B right. group. Um, so this one seems, as far as their singles go, to kind of stand out a little bit as its own thing. And um, and and it's, it's always the song of theirs that I that resonated the most with me. Um, and, uh, it's got that new Jack swing kind of, kind of beat to it as well, which I've, I've mentioned many times before that I like. And, uh, yeah, man, this is, uh, this is good stuff. I was excited to see this on the buzz bin and this would definitely go, this was like a no brainer, uh, a definitive, uh, yes, it's in my buzz bin. Um, and I will say the one thing I did pick up on the song, there was a couple times this happened this week, but of songs that I had known before, but I stayed, um, as I was listening to the horn part, um, there's like a part where it comes in in the chorus and it's very distinctive. It's always kind of like almost front and center in some ways. It's very distinguished, distinguishable. And then it, um, and then it tails off a little bit and there's like another part that kind of jumps to my, uh, the front of my consciousness. And, uh, and I heard, I, and I stayed with the horn is a little bit longer. I was like paying more attention to it. And I just, I liked the little ditty that the horns finished with that I was not familiar with. So it was kind of like hearing a new, a new part of a song that I was very familiar with. And, uh, I always like that in music when you, you think, you know, you think you have it down, you know, what's up. And then all of a sudden years and years and years later, you, 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 you hear something that makes you go, Oh damn, that was cool. Like, so, yeah. uh, so different levels. So yeah, thumbs up for me. Really dug this song. Nice. Yeah, I, I'm I'm right there with you. This is, I I think like one of the, you know, best examples of the New Jack Swing sound. It's it's certainly the song I always think of uh, when talking about that genre. Although you know we have I have been expanding my palette with our singles and albums that fit into that category, so I'm kind of getting a better idea. But this just really has it all. I love uh, it, kind of like Belle Biv DeVoe. Um, these guys, you know, are are like they have the chops right compared to some of the other you know imitations or or attempts to capitalize on some of the other more famous bands i i love their harmonizing uh, i love uh, the video is fantastic i watched that i made sure to watch the videos this week and it's got it all it's so got, many colors yes it is like primary colors out the wazoo you know they're they're dressed in like preppy fashion which i really like uh, ABC's makes a, a brief well, that's appearance. Their, that's a hallmark for them. That yeah. happy fashion. Yeah. yeah, I like I like it. It differentiates them too from the other um, groups. And a lot of shots in front of Gino's steaks, <laughs> which is funny in like Philly Philly um, monuments and things. And um, you know they got good dancing too. They cut back and forth between their dancing and and um, you know like kind of them like partying and or them being in f different places in philly and it's it's just got it, it's such an upbeat like up-tempo happy um joyous song to me and it, it just got it all so thumbs up for me as well did it make you want to buy a bright primary color blazer <laughs> with it, a hat that's yeah, yeah. and shorts yeah i wear shorts yep. yes mm -hmm, i absolutely. think i did pull that off outfit off at some time also did you see in the video did you watch the video matt this time I did not know. Did, did did you guys see that like group that they flashed to? That's like all white guys. That was like so clearly some like band that was also in there, in the like oh like a real band. Label. Yeah, like they the weren't same goofing label. around. Hmm. No, because they showed ABC and then they showed okay. this group that clearly like I had never heard of and didn't do do, do anything. You know who you don't you didn't look it up. You don't know who it is. I, I forgot the name. Uh, hmm. I I meant to make a note when I listened to it. Anyway, it's it, it must have been you know in the same hmm. label or something, but. Well, there was uh, a lot was of people well. floating around in this era. Like the Color Me Bad was sort of in the same mm -hmm. like era of this. So this wasn't um, them. They they were more. That's not obscure. who it was. Yeah, died. yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, good stuff. What do you think, John? 
Yeah, this is a very nostalgic song and not like, oh, like when I was, even though it was when I was young, that's not what I'm saying for nostalgia. This is like a throwback to like the sound of the 50s and 60s, right? And that's mm -hmm. why it's called Motown Philly. I mean, but I think it even goes deeper into the 50s where you had the the groups that sort of dressed preppy or formal and would perform on a show, right? Like in mm -hmm. the late 50s, 60s type of performer. And so this is sort of an homage to that, like just a bunch of kids who like to sing, they can improvise, you know, obviously Boys to Men flashes acapella more than most R&B groups. Matt's right. Like, I think when two comes, it's, I think they had a song, Thank You, which was upbeat off that, but most of the big songs were right. ballads. And, and we're not even talking like End of the Road, which wasn't even on that album. It was on a soundtrack instead. So there's all of these different massive songs. There's uh, One Sweet Day is another one that's not on that. That was a massive song. So um but yeah it's how can you not like this i i i always lament that they're just this isn't in the mainstream anymore i i guess the closest would be you could go see like straight no chaser or one of those acapella groups that you do but i'd much rather have a little bit more edge than that i'm not going to say boys to men are edgy necessarily but i like it more when it's framed in mainstream pop music mm -hmm. as opposed to oh like let's go with a bunch of you know, theater kids and people in their 50s to hear them sing songs that <laughs> right. I remember. You know, I, I like when it's more contemporary. And this was, I think what was cool about this when it came out and even to this day is it's part old, but it also seems of its time. Mm -hmm. um, and I like the merging of the nostalgia and classic uh, um, singing. I, I guess you can call this R&B, but I think this even goes back to pop or a little bit of... Um, traditional soul all the different stuff flown you know thrown together in like the the heritage of i guess what we could call you know mainstream black popular music right but mm -hmm. also as matt has mentioned multiple times it's it's got that production of the new jack swing uh that they kind of leave behind as we as they advance a little bit but this is a yeah. nice little time frame into it you could see why this was a massive song i grew up near philly so people were very very proud of boys to men not just because they were successful but also because they kind of put out a a positive image i think mm -hmm. yeah definitely. they were sort of like a real they were like a real sort of inspirational story like school friends talent and they kind of they kind of rose on talent alone because I, i'm not saying that they're not that they're ugly guys but they're they're not front-loading with sex appeal like a lot of the r&b was here and they're not front-loading with a clear front man i guess you could say wanye morris is kind of the front man but not always, you know what I mean, and they and, and that's where they're going to be similar to a group we cover later, and Vogue that I think yeah. famously. I went thought out there of were two not have a front woman. Yeah, yeah, I mm -hmm. thought the two guys that uh, the higher parts, right, the, the tenor Michael part. Bert, the... Uh, well, what's it? Um, I'm always. I think his name is Michael. The other. Um, yeah. The other. But like guy, the, yeah. the the tall the, the 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 skinny guy. I think his name is Sean, and then the bass guy. Those Sean, are kind of yes. those. Are, that's right. I would say the other two guys are more of the front. The men they had, you know, Michael's they, the deep voice guy. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah, he's definitely not the front man. You don't the bass no. is not yeah, but the um, but the other guys yeah, they're just their parts. This their vocal range lends themselves to being more uh, out in front of of the of the uh, of the mix. Yeah, I like famous yeah. famously like the four tops had a lead singer, but he famously would not set himself up as the lead singer. So the idea of having to have a lead singer sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't. But I never thought of boys to men being a vehicle for someone to break out. It seemed like they were a little tighter. Now I know they went yeah down right to four to four to three after a while um and did stuff like that so yeah 
But yeah, yeah, it wasn't uh, One Direction or In uh, Sync like Justin Timberlake and Harry Stott, right? Like, yeah, or exactly. like Smokey Robinson, The Miracles, or The yeah. Supremes with Diana Ross. Right. If we want to go back in time, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, I also too, I do like the fact that the bass singer is, you know, just you can like pick it out and distinct. And I always like when when groups like that can get somebody that goes that low and like actually adds the the bass sound to it. But you're right. They're, it's they're hard to sing bass parts. Yeah, I would imagine so. And uh, but you're right. They are, you know, they're good looking guys. They're clean cut. And I think that has a, a lot of appeal for for a wide audience. There you go. Well, and I mean, it's also it gives them the largest reach possible because yeah. they can cross over. They can cross over into in 1991 every type of music yep. station you could have. You know, they they. They're not going to have barriers on them in any genre they could the- theoretically be played in. So they could do adult contemporary, they could do pop, they could do R and B. You know, there's all these different stations they could be played on and be accepted. They're not going to be played on a rock station, right? But there's all of these places that, uh, and they they could be put on in almost any venue. Like Motown Philly could be played at a stadium, could be played in a house, in a car, at a school. So that's another thing. There's there's a gift to writing a song like that. So yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. Okay, Matt, what do you want to start with? No, Josh. Or Josh, I'm sorry. Yep. Um, let's talk about Michael Penn's No Myth. Now, okay. I think you guys said that I would know this song, but I did not know this song. Wow. I did not think you would. Matt, <laughs> I, Matt thought you would. I, I thought you would. I, it's been in movies and stuff. That's why I thought you would have caught it like from a movie somewhere or whatever, but okay. I no, know why I Matt thought you would know this, but I also knew based on what you hadn't known and shared that you didn't know that – Yeah this would have been in the same soup as things that you wouldn't, you know what I mean? That would have not been there yet. Right. Right. Yeah. I did. I did not recognize it. It didn't even seem familiar to me. And I did watch the video. That was pretty good. Pretty good video. Um, I did look into a little about Michael Penn. I guess he has gone into like the film score route for, for a lot of his music now. So, but what movie can you think of a movie that it was in, Matt, that you were thinking of? or It was in, um, I remember it being the closing song to that. It's like the Jason, it's a Jason Biggs movie where he's <laughs> okay. kind of like a nerd and like he gets the girl at the end or something. I forget that it's not American Pie. Here, I'll look it up. Give me a second, Josh. Okay. But um, by the yeah. way, one thing I want to do this week, can I just do quick, is I want to read my favorite comment from the YouTube comments on every video we cover. <laughs> so I'll go back okay. to Boys to Men. But, okay. Yeah. But um, I, I, yeah, I really like this song actually, and it kind of grew on me the more I listened to it. It it uh, has this really catchy like guitar part along with the the um, I guess it's the drums or or whatever like the beat against the the guitar is, and those two coupled together, and along with Michael Penn's voice, it's it's a really nice song. It, it kind of sounds familiar to. I guess male singer songwriters that have come later. I don't know, maybe like Ben Folds or uh, I don't know. There was a, f- a familiar familiar quality to it that I that I couldn't quite place. But it's a it's a really nice song. It, it does sound in a way like music for a movie when you, when, in retrospect when you when you listen to it. But I can see why the song was popular. It's it's um you know it's upbeat the video is interesting too it's kind of telling multiple he's like in a in a, an apartment and there's like t- telling cross-telling two stories uh, about people that live in other apartments and 
there's some visual flair to it and kind of movement of the camera and cutting back and forth between like black and white and and uh color and so that's interesting but yeah it's a it's it's a good one i don't know any other songs by him or um i think this is clearly his biggest hit from what i saw but but um yeah this was a good pleasant surprise for me so i'm putting this in the buzzbin also yeah i've always liked this song um quite a bit it's a it's a really straight ahead classic singer songwriter type of song and those types of songs i for me, we've talked about how do you judge certain genres of music, and for me, it's is the chorus worth waiting around for, I think. And and in this song, mm-hmm. I always have liked the chorus quite a bit. I think the, the lyrics to this are very good. This song also sounds like 1991, my God. It's like a, there's a certain songs that sound like certain years, right? And everything about the, the vibe of this song, even the video, it just, if you just wanted to have an understanding of, Mm-hmm. Uh, singer songwriter 1991 the lane you're in right you could do this is i think that's why it pops so much for matt because it just i remember this song quite a bit you'd, you'd hear it sort of effortlessly i always mm. notice it when i hear it and i always am reminded that i like this song as well so it, it, but it also is not omnipresent enough that you ever think about it it just kind of shows up every once in a while including on this podcast and it's there um I I wish I had more specific things to say about the song, but the the reason I don't I think is because I look at this as a specific type of music, mm-hmm. uh, a mode of singer songwriter, um, of which there is a, a large amount of it going around at this point in time, and as a result, there's tears of what I was enjoying and what I was. And we've covered different people in this exact era that were of this, right? You know, Matthew yeah. Sweet, right, comes to mind as someone like we covered. Uh, you know who did sort of a similar lane of this and then there were people that weren't necessarily singer songwriters but were writing types of songs like this like the Lemonheads we covered last week right like yeah. this alt rock sort of would we call it sad boy in this day boi right? like in this this day um but um that doesn't it's not a, a knock either but i i enjoyed it um goes in my buzz bin he's married and to I'll, amy I'll man give... i didn't know that I yes mm-hmm. yeah and I'll and give uh, I'll, he, I'll give the comments for this one and boys to men at the end. So. Okay. And he's uh, yeah, and he is uh, Sean Penn and and Chris Penn's brother. They're all brothers. Oh oh okay. Didn't know Chris, that yeah either. Chris yeah Chris Penn the uh, he well he passed away several years ago yeah. but he yeah. was in pulp uh, not pulp fiction uh, Reservoir Dogs but. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've always loved the song. I I remember this back in the day. This was a song that my brother played. Um, I, this is it reminds me kind of along the same lines that you're talking about, John. Is kind of like college rock, you know, from the early '90s. I think Beavis and Butthead. Is this college rock? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, I I mean, so yes, the chorus for sure. It's a, it's a great infectious yeah. chorus. She's got a great voice. It's like the soaring high voice that just uh you know it's 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 really catchy um but it, it it grabs you right away with the uh the 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 strumming of the of the acoustic guitar and mm-hmm. that drum the drum kick boom tack, right and it's just got this yep. very staccato catchy uh drum part that there's like a couple times in the song where that's basically all he's doing it's not mm-hmm. like it's kind of a stripped away mu- musically it's stripped away and it's and it's keeping you interested with that kind of drum pattern that's kind of unique it's kind of and, and it's really out in front too so it, that that to me um is one of the things that stood out again with the song is how that is just it's a very simple kind of drum beat 
but it's syncopated in a way that kind of makes it a little bit unique and and just and and interesting. And I think that that yeah. certainly is a driving force of the song. Uh, but um, yeah, and then the then I like the acoustic guitar strumming. Um, you know, it's kind of like yeah. a very you can tell that he's strumming very kind of you know vigorously on that guitar and it's very it's there's a lot of energy behind it even though it's kind of like a pop song that's not terribly i mean there's like there's an electric guitar solo but it's not a it's not a heavy song but there's energy behind what what they're doing so um so i that's that's i've always gravitated towards that and uh yeah i've always loved this like certainly would go in my buzz bin it's a no-brainer this is very this is this is like bubble gum for me it's like cotton candy music and uh yeah, kind of just like power pop, perhaps. Yeah, you probably throw it in there, but it's 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 certainly very very poppy and very catchy. And mm -hmm. uh, and the movie that it came from was uh, Loser. That was the Jason Biggs movie that oh, that, that I was remembering this from. So, uh, so yeah, of course, Buzzbin for me. This is yeah, this is definitely up my alley. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Like such a simple thing with that guitar chord and and the drum. Like that's all it takes to like make a, a yep. pleasing sound to, yeah. to build a song on. I guess that's what everyone strives for ultimately <laughs> as a musician, but harder, harder to do than, than, uh, harder, uh, than to explain it. Yeah. However, I'm trying to explain it anyway. <laughs> what, what are the comments, John? What do you, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Michael Penn one didn't have as many good ones as almost every other one we've ever covered at yeah. the time. I would say I'm going to paraphrase as I do this. I'm of course, I'm going to break the rules right off the bat <laughs> because this doesn't have one that stands out. And I read, over like 400 comments, but it seems like the Michael Penn one falls into one of three things. This song reminds me of insert name of person who had a horrifically tragic thing happen to them. And it always Jeez. comes back. Oh yeah. The second is people at various stores, coffee houses, gaps, <laughs> you know, like different places that <laughs> Harris Teeter was one of stuff like hearing the song play like over and over again, like on the loudspeaker. Cause it like seemed like it was perfectly, mm -hmm you know, built for that type of uh, thing. But, and then the, the third was sort of like, how was this guy uh, not not bigger in the 90s? But my two favorites were Shazam This Shit and CVS and Loved It was one of my <laughs> favorite, favorite ones. So that was good. I That one made me laugh because I could just see somebody like being like, what's this song? And kind of- Yeah, yeah, definitely. One. Yep. And uh, so- uh, the other one I liked was the most talented pen brother and also the sanest. <laughs> so, that would be my two favorite comments. And my favorite comment on Boys to Men Motown Philly was from a gentleman named Jay Biney One T Three, and it's my young ass only knew them for their ballads. I had no idea they could throw down too. Crying emoji, fire, fire. So that's also the most upvoted comment of all the comments. Six hundred eighty-three upvotes. Yep. Mm -hmm. All right, John, your, ch your choice uh, next. Let's talk about the English motherfuckers uh, <laughs> and unbelievable, which is what that EMF stands for, if I remember correctly. And uh, I have always had a soft spot for this song. I like the lyrics of this song, um, and I can still sing this song, which shocks me <laughs> because it came on. I'm like, because the lyrics aren't exactly, I remember as a kid, like having to like, discern what the lyrics were because I can remember a good couple months singing what I thought the lyrics were which is something I try not to do very often but I was not right but like if you were to hear me sing it there's a chance you could think that I was right because it's there so mm -hmm. at the beginning you know you you know you burden me with your questions you have to sing that like 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 a fluffy sort yeah. of light verse uh 
you have me tell no lies. You're always asking what it's all about, but don't listen to my replies. So it's it, this song's kind of like about a bad relationship. It seems like you're just somebody who annoys you, and then it goes into that you know your purple prose just gave you away, um, which was what I was singing wrong for like a good two <laughs> yeah. months, I'd say, before like I finally got a hold of the lyrics. I was like, oh wow, purple prose. I did not get that. So, um, so but yeah, I've I've always just had a soft spot for this. It's the perfect mix of a dance sound with an alternative rock sensibility. It, mm-hmm. it, it's like a hybrid sort of between the both, the, but it's just enough of both. It's to me, one of the more memorable one hit wonders of the nineties, because anybody between the ages of say eight and 50, I think knew this song in the night. Like even people that didn't necessarily know it would know this because this something like, you know, yeah, unbelievable would come mm-hmm. up at, various different things all mm-hmm. the time so i i'm almost certain that all of our parents even if they don't know who the hell sang this or whatever if they heard this they're like oh yeah i know that song unbelievable yeah. you know what i mean because it just was just one of those songs that came and it did it kind of without uh, like the airplay that like no myth would have or motown philly would have where it could show up everywhere it, it kind of did it more I, I don't know how it transcended into being this big song Besides the fact that it's got kind of an undeniable chorus that is designed to get you to sing along a little bit. And it almost just forces you to bob your head a little bit, mm-hmm. despite well, you itself. Did, you did say mm-hmm. that it was on a Jock Jams compilation, too. So I think that probably raised it the was, profile some. No, I don't think it was. I, like, I don't think of this as a Jock Jam. I really yeah. don't. I think of this as like a quintessentially early 90s one-hit wonder in the way that even though these songs sound nothing like it they do have the thing of bending into different genres like like a i'm too sexy right which is Mm -hmm. part dance part stuff and and just and also crossed over to the culture where even people that don't know the song or whatever will be like oh i'm too sexy you know or uh achy breaky heart right just all of these there's a lot of these songs in the 90s that were these one-hit wonders but yeah they're fondly remembered at a level way more than you would think they would be remembered. And I think the 90s was just filled with songs like that, these one-hit wonders that became – maybe it was monoculture, guys. Like, yeah. <laughs> there just wasn't as much going on. So if a song yeah. was big and it just – as a result, everybody just kind of found out about these songs. And remember, these songs weren't being played on like um, TV shows and stuff because that wasn't really a thing at this point in time and really – even like commercials didn't have licensed music as much as it used to. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I, I think this goes in my buzz bin, guys. I, um, you almost can't tell the tale of the early 90s without this song being on. It was a really, really big song. And, um, yeah, thumbs up. Well, I just did a quick uh, – because, I, John, I thought, I thought that EMF stood for eccentric motherfuckers. And so when you said English, I was like, let me just look this up. And we're both wrong. Um, it actually stands for Epson Mad Funkers, which is a term that was coined by an NME writer when he described fans of the band New Order. Hmm. Um, so that's apparently what the name of the band is. Um, okay. so. I mean, you could see a little New Order influence in this. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So um, I I actually do, uh, obviously I heard the song all the time like you guys um this to me is kind of like a jock jams in the sense that like and it's not just the chorus i think it's got a good i think it's got like a cool beat 
um, and like a groove that's goes on that's going on. And I could totally hear the song being played like before a basketball game as the players are warming right. up and stuff like that, showing off skills and whatever. It's got like this energy and this yep. rhythm and I agree. and and a, and, a, and a production style with that that and the guitar solo. It's very much in line with. I see why it was a jock jam. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that could, that could fill an arena and get people jazzed and amped for a sports, a sporting event. Um, you can imagine everyone just saying you're unbelievable. Yeah. And you're unbelievable. Right. And see like unbelievable dunks, right? Like at a dunk Mm -hmm. competition or something like that. So, uh, so yeah, even though, and I've talked about previously about like, you know, I don't like jock jams are annoying but this one is actually one that i kind of like i'm with you john i I, i've always kind of enjoyed this uh enjoyed this song um it's 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 like its own thing i mean it's probably elements you you can pull away from a variety of different things but they've i I don't know any of other any of the other songs in emf's catalog uh to to indicate whether you know they do sound like all their stuff sounds like this if this is just an anomaly or what have you uh but yeah man it's catchy it's got a cool there's a cool energy behind it. It's it, it does sound of its time. Um, I definitely remember the video and the the clothes that they were wearing and you know kind of like being at this live performance. And uh, I yeah I've always kind of had I've always liked it. I I would listen to it again. It would it would it would make my buzz bin. So yeah, thumbs up for me. Buzz buzz bin for me too. I I really like the song. I think for a long time I thought this was in excess, not knowing that this was like a one hit oh. wonder, because I feel like it has the same type of like upbeat. Uh, nature that NXS does and mm. it's kind of similar sounding I would say uh, but uh, yeah I, I just love the energy of it I love it's got an anthemic chorus I like how he's kind of like he's not like whisper singing but he's definitely like downplaying his singing to like build up to the chorus I, I really like that too and I, I don't know there, it, there's something like uh, really kind of familiar and pleasing and you're right i think i feel like the song was everywhere at, at, yeah. at some point like uh, you know i don't know it just you'd hear it <laughs> i don't know how to explain it but but uh it, very familiar and i did not know it was by emf uh back then and so it was good to learn and the video i'd say the video was unremarkable it's just kind of them in performing and on like i remember that and, hat the singer yeah hat. sideways, yes. sideways mm-hmm. hat <laughs> yeah the fashion's funny but but uh mm. but the video there's not really anything necessarily like fantastic going on in the video or, or uh interesting but but uh good stuff good energy so mm-hmm. thumbs up for me well the youtube comments are always helpful because that's how i learned like quest love was the drummer for motown philly right and is in the oh, video really? as well hmm. mm-hmm. so the drummer remember playing in that that's quest love oh. and on this one i learned from comment commenter michael e2d2uj that says lately i've had a renewed interest in andrew dice clay and came back to listen to this song dice is the one heard going Oh, in the song, uh, which I never <laughs> knew. Really? There you go. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I that was never his, do that. That was uh, and that was the dice man's cue to get the crowd to laugh yeah. when he went. Oh, yes. then you're supposed to laugh. That's so. That's did he funny. get like royalties for that? You think, I have in the video? no idea. There's a lot of comments <laughs> about the baseline of this song too, which is mm. pretty fire. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and it's funny because I didn't do as much reading on this one as other ones, but there's also a shockingly large amount of people that are like. I'm 68 years old and love this song. So I'm yeah. like, well, you know, it's a lot. So I'm like, wow, okay, I was on to something there that like this song kind of penetrated the mm-hmm. subculture. So, um, yep. So there you go. Nice. 
Mm-hmm. Right on. Okay, uh, let's uh, let's go with Tony Childs. I've got to go now, and I did not know this song either. And shit, I guess it's a very earnest sounding song. She's got a share like voice. And, you know, Matt was kind of trying to imitate. There is a yarl. Yeah, there's a yarl. There's like a war, like a a vibrating warbliness to it uh, when she sings. And I guess she's American, but Sherry called it a cross between Shakira and Celine Dion. Oh, okay, I can see that. Although Shakira's more, you know, Shakira's kinda, got a, a yarl a tempo. Yes, yes. But in the vo- in voice, in terms of the voice, right? Yeah, the voice yeah. is what. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. But this song is. I should have gone back and read the lyrics but it's got a it's about domestic abuse it seems like (laughs) okay Mm all right yeah i guess that makes sense based on the title oh that's why she has to go (laughs) okay (laughs) and like alcohols involved i mean all that's a good idea she should she should go now that i know that yeah and the video the video reflects that too (laughs) she's you know the video is kind of like shaded and red and very uh serious and her like singing straight to the camera and and uh intercut with you know a house and things like that and um so yeah i i don't i was kind of underwhelmed by this song i i think i would have liked it more if there had been some sort of like hook to it uh it's just kind of an earnest ballad obviously it's a serious subject but but um i i'm surprised it was kind of like so famous or so popular i think it was pretty high on the charts uh for a bit and um yeah so i'm gonna give it like thumbs in the middle i don't really have a lot to say about this one go ahead matt i'll take the last take <laughs> well I, I mean as soon as the song started i was like is this the living years by mike and the mechanics because it's got that very similar like that guitar to, not, not, you didn't you didn't hear that at all i don't know no, i mean it's got similarities yeah yeah it's like it's the very beginning is the same that guitar part is uh, the mm. mike and the mechanics song um it doesn't have I, the soaring chorus that that song has but yes it's no I hear right what you're saying. Yeah. yeah but it, I mean, yeah um so i didn't know the song either it's the one song this week uh of, of these that i did not know um and i it, it's kind of long it's over six minutes too that's the other thing mm. um and i found myself liking this more as it as the week went on i've listened to it well, you know, probably about three or four times. And I think I liked it each time more than I did the time before. Hmm. And uh, I, yeah, the vocals, they, I certainly got the, the, the Cheryl, like the, the Cher warble, Yarl, whatever we want to call it in, in there. Um, didn't bother me as much as Cher's vocals do. And I kind of did like the production of this. Like the, it's like there's, there's a very soothing nature to this sound. It's very crisp, very produ- mm-hmm. very uh, very clean production and um i i kind of liked it like I, I was just like wow you know this is it's not something that i would typically uh gravitate towards but um i i just liked the production the echoey kind of reverb that was going on with and um i thought the chorus it wasn't um like you know knock me over or anything like that or you know but it's I, I did enjoy it. I thought it was pretty solid. So I don't have a ton to say about it either, other than like, I was like, this sounds like the living years to me, which that's mm-hmm. a song that I don't mind either. I know that people people love to hate that song and I get why, but I, like sonically, I think I, I enjoy that type, that type of sound. So I'm thumbs up. I don't know if I would f- go full blown in the buzz bin on this one, but I definitely enjoyed it. And it was a song that I didn't really know. So I, I, I would give it a thumbs up. 
Nice. Well, first, first of all, I'm not going to do comments for this one because most of them are people sharing experiences with domestic abuse oh, okay. and alcohol. Okay. Abuse. Good. So good call. I <laughs> don't. There will be time. I don't really feel it's the place and right. stuff like that. Uh, with that being said, I, I was not a fan of this song. Mm -hmm. I I did not like the voice of the singer. It was it was close to an impenetrable barrier for me. Yep. I did not like the production of the of the song. Um, it was a little too boilerplate for me. Uh, all I could think of with this is, is there an artist who can do this, like sing this song? Because the lyrics were not bad. The lyrics were were pretty touching, and I could see why someone going through it would really connect to the lyrics of this song because it was a well written song lyrically. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, the first thing that came to mind for me is like this sounds kind of like Cher. Um, there's some yarl here, so it's it's almost like someone singing like 90s grunge, but like as a female singer, right? And I, mm -hmm. and so I was, then I was like, okay, other people with non-traditional voices in this era, like, you know, Ani DeFranco and stuff. I'm like, it's not quite that. Like, you know, Linda Perry of Four Non Blondes came to mind a little bit. Yep. And I was just like, who, Shakira's a good one that, that was mentioned there. I didn't get a Celine Dion vibe of this at all, but I, I guess because like, the way she sings might make her sound French at certain times because that it like cuts off like bah, bah, like a lot of that type sound that mm -hmm. it, I think of as like the French language. But um, yeah, I just it just as a song it was pretty unremarkable for me. Um, I did give it several listens to see if it would grow on me like it did to Matt, but it didn't necessarily. I, I don't want to minimize the message and like I said, the the best part of the song was the the lyrics, which I thought were solid. And then I started thinking, okay, like this is kind of like the type of song that like Natalie Merchant would sing, but yeah. I feel like it would be a better song if Natalie Merchant sang it. And I was like, that I guess that has to come down to voice, right? right. And um, yeah. famously, there are people that hate Natalie Merchant's voice too, most notably my mother, who just can't do it right, <laughs> with that. But I just world like known Natalie Merchant <laughs> hater, John's mom. I just want that. I just feel like that type of voice. And then the, the parallel to this song, thematically, I finally realized, was like Joey by Concrete Blonde, which is also like about being in a yep. relationship with like, but it's a more wistful, romantic version of it. And like, I kind of like the boozed out, like the, the cigarette smoking, you know, you know, boozed out, blown out type of voice that was being used in that song more than I like this one, which just kind of just just sounded to me like over and over again, like, bah, bah, like over and it just, I couldn't get past it. So I couldn't yeah, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. And the production, you mentioned the living years, right? Another song I'm not a huge fan yep. of. And, uh, and it's because of the production. It's yep. just, it's too, some people would say clean. I don't think of this production as clean. I, I, I call it like streamlined where it's like a vacuum cleaner to suck out feeling which is a real shame for me because the song <laughs> the song has a, as really good intentions and better lyrics but the production of it makes it sound more generic than it should sound to me mm -hmm. so yeah this one's this one's not going to my buzz bin guys all right fair enough mm -hmm. and i guess that leaves me with uh jesus jones right here right hey, now Zeus. uh yeah. I, and it's funny that we're covering this the same time as uh, Unbelievable by EMF. Yeah, because they kind for, of are comboed, yeah. Because yeah. for some reason, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, they came out at the same time. Right. They were both one-hit wonders. I mean, the songs don't really sound, they're not, it's not, I wouldn't say no. that the songs themselves are comparable, but like, 
you know, maybe the video, I think maybe the Jesus Jones video was another concert, you know, that was it, basically it was. just a basic, yeah. you know, yeah, video, their concert video. Um, so I kind of just lumped these together as like around the same same time. But uh, I've liked the song as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, it's like this, you know, I, it's got like, there is a little bit of a nostalgic vibe. I remember it was played on the real world a lot, like the real world season two. They played it on a couple episodes, I think. And it was kind of like very much of its time. You know, it's like, hey, we just always right here, right now. Like, you know, it's like very much trying to be in the present moment and, uh, and whatever. So uh, it's nothing. I wouldn't say that it's anything special. It certainly isn't rewriting anything or, it's, you know, it's... Uh, you know, or groundbreaking or anything like that, but it's always, it's, it's been a song that I've always enjoyed, never loved, um, but always enjoyed and, you know, would not turn it off. And I yeah. think it's got a pretty, pretty recognizable chorus. That's easy to sing along, you know, kind of in my mind, checking off that box that John, you were talking about in terms of, does the chorus move you at all? And I think this one, I think this one does. I like the whole, I like the, uh, the incorporation of the horns. I like the guitar part. I like the kind of this, there's like a synth drum track that's happening that, um, that I enjoy as well. So, uh, so yeah, it's a very, it's a very good, very solid song for me, and um, and I've always enjoyed it. So I, I it's so much that I would put it in my buzzbin, probably just because I've so much I've known it for so long, and it's I'm, I'm also kind of a nostalgic person, and it does kind of take me back a little bit when I hear it. So uh, yeah, buzzbin worthy for me. I, I really enjoyed this week. I thought I thought we had a good after a couple Single weeks week. of yeah. some duds, some songs that I really wasn't feeling. You know, even the one that I was feeling the least amount here with the Tony Childs, I've got to go now. Um, I I still enjoyed that one well enough that uh you know this is this is a very solid week so overall thumbs up on the single selection this week including jesus jones yeah i i agree that there is something like the unbelievable song this is quintessentially 90s in some yeah. way to in my mind and it's funny that it was paired and with, like gen with x that song. it's like <laughs> yes. such a gen yep. x type song <laughs> yes, yes. It, 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 you know, it's, uh, you compare it with Winds of Change by the Scorpions. It's like the same thematic <laughs> kind of content. It's like I think. the most earnest you could be as a Jet Exit is yeah. this song. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, there's something about it. It's so, uh, recognizable and, and, uh, kind of the way that he whispers things too. Yeah. And the, the hilarious part about the video is the guy who's playing the keyboard is like crazy dancing. <laughs> like he's like going oh, really? nuts and he's like not even, not even like, an like up, I don't even know what part he's playing. He's just like, like off beat. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. like, it doesn't fit. It's like yeah. they spliced him in from a different song. He's like over exuberant. And uh, yeah. uh, so that was really funny watching that, but cause it's, it's stuck out <laughs> considerably, but yeah, I, I, this song's timely in, in some ways it could be about any sort of era where there's a lot of change, which, you know, it's right now it, it, pretty much any time in history, you could make the argument, but, but, uh, yeah, thumbs up for me on this one. This, this, I think this has to go in the buzzman just from some sort of like representation of 90 of 1990 mm. or the nineties. Oh, for, for sure. Yeah. I, I've yeah. always liked this song I, and not like reluctantly kind of like Matt was saying, I, I like this song full, full-throatedly i yeah. think and yeah i i joked earlier i said but this is in its in its way it's an earnest upbeat song but it doesn't have the try hard nature of a lot of songs like that because it, it still sounds like the late 80s and the early 90s and and they're part of that like um they're part of that that British scene, I think it was called Baggy was the name of the scene if i remember correctly but there's a oh, there's a lot of bands the Stone that, Roses 
Yeah. Yeah. Stone Roses, mm-hmm. uh, like James, right, was another yep. band that kind of sounded like this, uh, that had that song lead, which I'm sure we'll cover at some point uh, down the road as well. But a lot of those songs, yeah, just, um, you know, I Want to Be Adored by the Stone Roses, this one. Uh, I do lump this with the EMF song, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, for whatever reason. That's and funny. I'm not alone because the YouTube comments have those two songs, like, intrinsic. That was not by yeah. design when I put those two together. That's so weird. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I know that um, they did do like like industrial sound mm-hmm. in later albums because I remember listening to a Jesus Jones, al- Jones album a couple years later and thinking it was going to sound like this, like sort of like that baggy scene or even like a little bit like part Smiths, part Depeche Mode, New Order. It kind of all blended to get like tweaks mm-hmm. of that same thing. And instead it was this like deep industrial album. I was like, whoa, okay, they've taken um, a turn. And also I... Once again, when I'm young, full disclosure, I did not know Jesus Jones was a band. I thought it was like a person was <laughs> yeah. Jesus Jones. But nope. Yeah. And that was before I saw the video. Because somehow this video escaped me, even though the song oh, did really? not. It was on all the time. And my comment for this one, which cracked me up, was the guy wrote in all lowercase letters that I thought was funny. You have no idea how many times this song played on the radio on a 1,000-mile road trip from <laughs> East Coast to Illinois in summer 1991. I open emoji. Yeah. <laughs> so, I thought was funny. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but I like this one. I, it's just, it's really catchy. It, it's kind of timeless. It's also the type of song that you can play for people and they will immediately like it regardless of what station of life yeah. they're in. And I, I do think it's a song that travels out of the nineties very well. Mm-hmm. Um, it did have a moment after a while of becoming like Matt said, Every time somebody wanted to like talk about being in the moment, they'd play this song and it kind of became eye rolling. But that's not on Jesus Jones. That's on yeah. corporate America for taking a song and bastardizing it, you know? Like, mm-hmm. just like, yeah, EMF with the dump contest where it's like chopped up and uh, like played together. So I, I try not to hold that against the artists themselves because there wasn't as much they weren't necessarily going out and selling and prostituting it. It was being taken from them forcibly often at times, you know, and being turned into whatever they wanted mm-hmm. it to be. So, um, so in this era, I'm much more forgiving of, of an omnipresence, mm. uh, of a song, but yeah, easy, easy buzzbin collection for me. Another one that like, if we're talking like 1990 to 1992, it's hard to not put this in the buzzbin yeah. because it's one of the bigger songs of that era. And, right. and a lot of the biggest songs of, of like that specific area 90 to 92 are like these one hit wonders almost more so than any other period where i think they're as big as the songs by the big artists so mm-hmm. yep for whatever that's worth mm-hmm. yeah one of our uh i think to close it out one of our best weeks for for singles i think four of the five are in the buzzbin this week that's kind of a rare thing yeah we usually kind of average through you know three or two or three maybe I, I'd I have to go back and run the stats on that. I don't know for sure, but I don't think we've ever gotten all five. And I could have told uh, you they would have all that those four would have made my buzz bin even before listening to any of them because I just knew them so. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, these are all going in the buzz. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wasn't sure about Tony Childs, but yeah, I knew the other four were. Nice. Yep. So all right, all right. We're in album number one, and we the are main going event. to be for the first time visiting our friend Morrissey as a solo artist. So in the um, in the montage, you heard, I believe I picked Glamorous Glue, if yes. I'm correct. Mm-hmm. And now you're going to hear a little bit of We Hate It When Our Friends Become Successful. And if they're northern, that 
that stuff. Run the numbers. All right, so Your Arsenal by Morrissey comes in at number 349 in the 1990s on Best Ever Albums, number 35 in 1992, number 1,857 of all time. It's Morrissey's fourth highest rated album on Best Ever Albums behind 2004. Let me try to guess. Yep. Okay, I was going to say You Are the Quarry probably. Yeah, that's number three. Viva Hate. Uh, that's number and one. And Voxel and I? That's number two. Yep. So Voxel and I is yeah, 94. Yeah. Viva Hates 88. So we're not covering that one because that was last decade. Yep. So um, We did cover Swedehead, though, which was on we that did. album. Yeah. Oh, okay. And uh, your arsenal uh, did not make Rolling Stones list, list. And Morrissey is ranked as the number 282nd highest overall artist uh, on Best Ever Albums. All right. So um, I'll try to follow the – I mean – Come on, Morrissey, like what genres, right? Like member of Smiths, basically British indie rock, you know, and now lover of the classics and 50s and 60s standards singing uh, along with traditional R&B. So obviously glam rock, you know, president of the New York Dolls fan club when he was young and uh, brought in David Bowie's uh, uh, Mark Ronson to be the producer of this album, his guitarist. So there you go. So a connection right there. Uh, Morrissey has 14 solo albums, many of which have just tremendous titles, I have to say, (laughs) um, along the way, like Ringleader of the Tormentors and World Peace is None of Your Business, You Are the Quarry, I Am Not a Dog on a Chain. So there's great stuff. And obviously there's there's some fantastic titles of songs on this album as well. Mm -hmm. So we're there i mean do we really have to go like related artists I, i'll skip all that stuff because i think you know if you're listening to this show you kind of know the related artists if you really need to know who are related artists um you know you could you know uh you could oasis later pulp right james who i mentioned before suede those would all be similar yeah. artists to him influenced by obviously the velvet underground new york dolls roxy music that's the, I don't have to like look <laughs> to see who it is and followed by it depends on if we're talking a lot of emo you know would be kind mm-hmm. of stuff mm-hmm. that they came out of that and obviously the Smiths have their own legacy as well so if you're unfamiliar I guess with who Morrissey is you can go back and listen to the the Smiths reviews because they're there but obviously he is now by himself on some of his earlier earlier solo albums he did have uh, both uh, Andy Rourke and Mike Joyce playing which of course would be Interesting because in the mid '90s he famously has a very, very, very acrimonious uh, like royalty fight where he and Johnny Marr are on one side of it and the other members on the other side. If you ever want to laugh, you can read the judges' personality profile of all of the members of the Smiths. In it, um, he kind of rates them by IQ, which is pretty remarkable, right? For a judge doing different stuff like that, and he saves his most harsh words for Morrissey. Morrissey spends like upwards of 40 to 45 pages in his autobiography, which of course is a, a, a penguin classic as well. <laughs> as I part love of the that. context that was there. Um, I did read it all a jillion pages. It's hilarious at parts and also maddeningly dull at parts, depending on what you're reading, which mm-hmm. is kind of like the story of Morrissey um, a little bit at different times. So it's very hard to do a bio for him. I'll give the the basic thumbnails here. He was born May 22nd, 1959 in um, a town called Davy Home, uh, Lancashire was the area where he was from. He famously grew up in a factory town, which he really, really, really did not like. Um, 
uh, he had Irish roots and did say that he was a victim of anti-Irish sentiment um, in the area that he was in. And the house, his mom was a librarian, which makes a ton of sense when you know about his love of literature in many ways. And he was certainly not super close, did not really admire his father as well. He becomes obsessed with um, pop culture in general in his youth. So he's watching a lot of older movies. He is watching like A Taste of Honey, the the film, uh, the film adaptation in 1961 is a big... Uh, influence on him glam rock in the 70s which we certainly will hear on this album is a big deal for him so people like david bowie roxy music and t-rex which sort of play into his constant playing around with androgynous sort of themes as both a solo musician but also in the smiths um he as i mentioned earlier he becomes the uh, british head of the new york dolls fan club and he also loves uh classic British singers, most notably like Sandy Shaw and Dusty Springfield, are also influences for him. Um, he's writing hilarious uh, letters to the editor <laughs> in various things like Melody Maker and stuff like that throughout the late 70s and mentions often that he also is kind of like a borderline shut-in at times. It's, with Morrissey, it's always hard to tell what is um, true, true <laughs> and what is building the mystique of it, but I think yeah. there's a fair amount of truth for that he's kind of living hand to mouth he's going to lots of punk shows he's kind of being a vocalist for certain punk bands it's just not sticking and then he meets johnny marr they form the smiths as a band the rest is sort of history they become sort of media they have a one of the more fascinating careers in that they become hugely popular in britain and a complete and total cult act in the united states only for people to like discover the smiths like bigger in the 90s when of course he's a solo artist yeah and but by the time people start to discover him on a larger level he's moving away from the albums that sounded like the smiths and doing all of this experimentation some of which like this one in Vauxhall and i were well received and other stuff like south paul grammar and maladjusted which were not well received and so by about like 97 he stops recording he moves to la and basically takes seven years off before doing You Are the Quarry. During that time, he also becomes a like a cult figure in Mexican-American and Mexican culture, which is one of the more interesting yeah. <laughs> side stories that's there. But he's very, very big in Mexico. It's because they say a lot of his stuff is similar to... Um, you know, the sad songs, right, that are written about relationships and the emotive area of things. And it's just a piece of Mexican culture that kind of juxtaposes with machismo, right? And, you know, Morrissey famously loves, you know, he has the, the depressive sort of, you know, androgynous bending, but he's also very obsessed at times with things like prize fighting and like rugged masculinity at times, which they think is why maybe he connects because there's a little bit of that. So... Uh, like post uh, postscript leading up to this specific album is he does release the album Viva Hate, which is very well received, but it's kind of in some ways viewed as like a continuation of the Smiths, right? It's, it sounds very similar to it. There's a lot of themes and, but it goes well. Suedehead comes out, it goes number five on the British singles. Every day like is like Sunday is a huge hit and that's a top 10 hit there. The album's number one on the UK charts. Um, yeah, there's just enough of the intrigue of, 
the Smith's still around. He's, you know, the final track is Margaret on the guillotine, which is about Margaret uh, Thatcher being executed. Um, and, you know, so he's keeping sort of the same um, vibe there. Um, he then puts out some singles. Uh, I think probably the most well-known one is Last of the Famous International Playboys, which were pretty big hits. But it's taking him a long time to do the follow-up to this and just it's sort of turbulent he finally puts out a uh, album called bone a drag uh it is not well regarded um as an album it does have a one pretty big hit november spawned the monster um which is a, a pretty big hit um but at around this time he's sort of getting it from all angles because the british gay press is not loving the fact that he in their mind is sort of playing with gay themes, but not coming out and endorsing sort of movement stuff and hmm. not being uh, sort of uh, overt about it for the first of many times in his career, he will sort of be uh, tagged for maybe having some uh, nativist views. I would say it would be like, he would say it's like very English views, but you know, he writes like Bengali on platforms, which you know, in platforms, which can be sort of seen as, anti-immigration and maybe a little bit about you know you have to assimilate to british culture he has always sort of fought back on that and said that he um uh like he just likes being british you know but interestingly he lived in la for a long time and stuff so go figure along the way um but he's also performing with like michael stipe at times he is you know, joining David Bowie for different stuff. And so this was sort of like an album that was, it wasn't looked at as a make or break, but it was definitely like, let's see what he does here because, um, you know, he, a lot of people have described this as the black phase in his like career, especially with the British press who he's like feuding with all the time. And for, he was kind of like a critical darling with the press for a long time. And this is where he feels like they're kind of turning on him and they're like, well, we're just putting, you know the light on you at this point so a lot of like this this album is about sort of those themes um as i mentioned before mick ronson i think i said mark ronson earlier i, I misspoke obviously mark ronson is also an artist but um i my brain was off there this is mick ronson um david bowie's guitarist and uh uh morrissey was super pumped about this because he's a huge uh david bowie fan the idea of morrissey being super pumped is hilarious i think in some ways but um this is an album that's about american culture um but it's about american culture as not a good force and he wants to talk about like british culture as being something that needs to be held up against american culture so that is a hmm. a theme of this um album sort of in general and it is a return to form for him it was well regarded Critically, it earned him a Grammy nomination for Best Alternative Music Album, um, and it got to number four on the UK Albums Chart. And yeah, um, even people as uh, as sort of challenging as like Robert Criscow said that he thought it was his best solo album. So there you go. I, I could keep going. There's so much more with more. I'll try to weave it in on my take, but that's a little bit of the subtext leading up to this. Um, I know this one. Um, I'm familiar with this album. I'm going to guess that both you guys are not as familiar with this, so I'm really curious to hear your thoughts. What do you think? 
Yeah, I'll go first. I really like this album. I don't know why I never, you know, as, as much as I like the Smiths, I don't know why I never really continued to explore kind of Morrissey's solo work. Um, I enjoyed Suedehead when we listened to that song, but this album is, in my mind, a continuation, not necessarily of the Smith sounds, but of what makes Morrissey special in my mind, or at least unique. He, he takes... I don't know. He, it's hard to say, but he takes these sounds, these, you know, kind of, uh, rock sound, uh, they're, are so familiar yet they make, he makes them his own. It's kind of hard to, to say why, but, uh, it's just a great kind of rock sound that feels classic in some way, but also contemporary to when he's making the album. It's, it's kind of retro, I guess uh, you could put it as well. And, um, no one can can turn a phrase quite like Morrissey, if not in his song titles, but also in in his lyrics. I um, I really enjoy his sense of humor, um, coupled with with this classic sound. You know, the first track you're gonna need someone on your side has like the surf rock sound, and then it kind of continues on throughout the album um, with those types of classic like American sound. So I guess he's like taking American rock music well, and kind of making it british in some ways that's he's um, juxtaposing it yeah is the whole theme of it yeah mm-hmm. yeah so i i guess i like that contrast that he that he's doing with that and then you know with a title like the national front disco which is like the fourth track i mean that just gets me smirking especially since we're talking about rage later and uh their leftist politics and the um you're the one for me Morrissey's politics are very interesting they're like all over the he's hard to categorize it's kind of like whatever you want to not like he can be depending on your moment yeah yeah he's uh, yeah that's a whole other conversation you could have or deep dive I'm sure people have written about it but uh, I thought this album was strong really strong overall I enjoyed listening to it it um just brought me like feel good vibes contrasted with like you know, when you pay attention to the lyrics, I, I, I guess I gravitate to Morrissey's lyrics more than other artists, um, just because I know um, his talent for them. And uh, this this album was no exception for that. Uh, we hate it when our friends become successful. That is hilarious lyrics, as well as a um, funny song title. But yeah, this is, uh, um, I might go back and listen to Viva, Viva Hate, um, because I really like this, so I'm I'm interested to see. You know, he has a lot of solo work that, and I don't really know any of it, so I'm interested to see kind of what the trajectory is and uh, what else. Uh, you know, how different. You pointed out some of his other albums are maybe more experimental, so I'm curious as to what those are going to be like as well. But thumbs up for me on this one. Yeah, this is a new listen for me. So you're right about that, John. And uh, I know some of Morrissey's solo stuff, like a single here. I did know Suedehead, um, even though I wasn't on that uh, podcast with you guys. And I do really like that song. And uh, what I, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm i still, the lyrics I was picking up here and there for sure. Um, certainly the fat, the song titles were made, you know, got a couple of chuckles um, mm-hmm. out of me. And I was picking up things here and there. But I certainly... I listened to this album probably three times and um, I, I was never like intently the way that I need to really focus on lyrics is to sit down consciously and not just listen to them, but also to read them. Cause sometimes it's hard to make yeah. out exactly what's being said. Um, I don't know if you need but, to know the lyrics. It's more like when you know them, you'll, as Josh said, chuckle or just sure. have a little bit and more. I, 
And I know that going into a Morrissey album, like, or a Smith's album, like, I know that this is like, it's not just, and I know that I would appreciate and laugh and get a kick out of what he's doing. But again, it's not, it's not my default. So most of my comments will be about the music as they usually are. So um, I want to give props to, looks like his main songwriter here is Alan White who looks, seems like he's the guy that like has written with him for a while. Uh, Mark Nevin, right? Guitarist too. Yeah. Morrissey always has good fucking guitarists in his. Yeah. So that's, so that's kind of why I was like initially, you know, like, Oh, I don't know what Morrissey's going to be like. Cause I obviously Johnny Marr did the majority of the music with the Smiths and I like their music because of Johnny Marr. And I, I gotta say, I like what Alan White's doing on most of this album. I think there's a good variety here musically. Right. Yeah. I was a little like, I actually think the first two songs with uh, the surf rock and kind of the you're going to need someone on your side and more of the straight up blues rock of glamorous glue while i did like those songs i was kind of like nah they're okay right like i wasn't musically taken in by those songs but i thought as the album progressed i was feeling more into it like i liked we'll let you know that had a cool like acoustic kind of thing going on where there's a section it's actually like I forget, I don't know how long it is, but there's a section towards the end where you think it's just going to be all instrumental and then they finally bring the, the vocals back in. But there's some interesting uh, uh, studio techniques that are being done there, effects that kind of make that song interesting. And then he goes a little bit more straight ahead pop with like the National Front Disco, which an upbeat, catchy song that I really liked. And then Certain People I Know has got a country vibe to it. It's like this yep. really jaunty, you know, um, you know, uh, it's not slide guitar or anything like that, but just the way the guitar is being played, those notes are being plucked. It's a very, you know, um, it's like a country song, um, you know, and then the certain people I know, or I'm sorry, we hate it when our friends become successful and you're the one for me, fatty. Those are <laughs> made me laugh and like upbeat. And, and, and it's, it, it finishes out really well too, with a couple of like slower ballads. And then like tomorrow, I think is a great way to end it. I love the baseline in that. Um, that was a song that I really connected with. So yeah, musically I was, I was, um, as the album progressed, I found myself liking it more and more. And, um, you know, and, and I do like, I still like Morrissey's voice, even, even if I'm not always mm-hmm. picking out the lyrics and the messages or whatever he's saying, there's just something, um, unique. There's definitely something unique about his voice. So it's, he's got like a distinct voice, but it's kind of just like, just because you know, his personality to an extent, it's just the way he emotes and stuff. Like I, I can laugh just by listening to his voice, if that makes sense, right? Like it's not even, it's just, just Morrissey being dramatic, you know, Morrissey, but also tongue in cheek. And, you know, it just melds in well with the music. So he, yeah, he did a good job picking some, picking, you know, a songwriter that is able to um, really, uh, you know, um, be put to music uh, in a very, very, uh, you know, uh, 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 consistent way. Right. And also, but, but giving you variety as well that, that the Smiths were able to do. So I, I credit to him as well, but yeah, thumbs up for me. And, um, I probably should know Morrissey, more Morrissey stuff. I, you know, I, I'm sure that more of his stuff that I, uh, I, if I would listen to it, I would like, particularly if it's, this is the guy writing the music, which it seems like he was, I think it looks like here it's saying he was his main songwriter between 91 and 2007. So certainly he's, he's a critical part of, uh, of, of the Morrissey sound. Mm -hmm. And uh, I enjoyed it. Thumbs up. It's uh, yeah. And it's maybe not as much as the Smiths overall, but still very, uh, a a very uh, good listening experience. So yeah, thumbs up. Yeah. I find Morrissey, the solo artist to be a really interesting artist. And I think it's in some ways, I think, people that love the Smiths sometimes don't listen to Morrissey, which is such yeah. an interesting thing. But I think it's because 
they just assume they, they won't like what he's doing or he'd go so far in a different direction. And I think the first thing you notice, I, I got, I would say my entry into Morsi's solo stuff. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I listened to a lot of the Smiths, but there's a lot going around. So I wasn't necessarily kicking around with his solo stuff. I knew like the more you ignore me, the closer I get. And yeah. That's a good the, one. The big songs from the nineties. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. But, um, but I didn't know it. At, you know, I didn't know anything besides like that. Every every day is like Sunday and the stuff you'd come across like that. And it wasn't really until um, it's funny because I can remember listening to it, guys, um, right around uh, before I went to graduate school with you guys. Uh, the You Are the Quarry album, which I really I mean, if there is ever a Morrissey album you want to listen to the lyrics of, Matt, that's the one when we cover that. <laughs> yeah. um, you should listen to because he's in prime form in that one lyrically and musically. Um but I really enjoyed that album, got the, the next albums he released, and then went backwards. Um, quickly realized, you know, Viva Hate was like the Lost Smiths album. Mm-hmm. Um, found mm-hmm. stuff on Bona Drag I liked and then came across this one. And I can still remember having the reaction then that I had now, which is like, wow, what a really great glam rock album this is. Because it's just, it's that, that uh, glam guitar that I love so much in classic Bowie, which for obvious reasons it is, or T-Rex or Sweet, like all those those glam bands I really mm-hmm. enjoy. It's it's sort of like an effortless, pleasant listen. And then you wouldn't think that Morrissey's crooning would work so well with it, but his voice is surprisingly as dexterity in terms of weaving in. And it can kind of take on what it needs to take on at times, which I think is something that people miss about Morrissey as a vocalist sometimes, and that he's got more range of doing different things than you'd think and there's a variety on his solo albums that really stands out and and this one is definitely a hard rocking album i think it's Mm -hmm. a really good guitar album yeah and uh, one thing about morrissey you know going all the way to like johnny marr but in his solo career too he always has great guitarists around him Uh, like uh, like whether it be like alan white uh, white on this one or you know his current guitarist if you see live performances of his solo artist the first thing that's going to pop out to you is like wow he always has good guitarists mm-hmm. around. He's kind of like Ozzy. Ozzy's another guy who just always has great guitarists around him at all times. He's just got like a gift for finding all of these people. And and I think B- Morrissey sort of knows as much as he talks about loving the standards and how boring the conventions of rock art stuff. There's a lot of songs about all of that here. This this whole album, I didn't have to read about it lyrically, is about like how Britain is rotting away and america is taking over for it and he's not even like necessarily angry about it he's more angry at the british for like kind of being lazy in his mind and not pushing it forward and being too uh apt to not hold on to what made them uh you know quintessentially british right which Hmm. like i said when you read how things play out for him it's kind of all in plain sight a little bit he's talking Hmm. about as early as this right so uh, but yeah, I, I really enjoy this album. I think for those that may not know Morrissey's solo career, uh, this is a really good place to start because yeah. I think it will surprise you. And I think it's going to have familiar sounds. And I think if you're one of those people who are like, oh, I don't really want to hear like a bunch of like mopey, you know, over the top songs. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by the fact that there's yeah. not a lot of that on this album. It's very up tempo and yep. uh once again, has a nostalgia because he always does and also is a throwback to glam, but 
fits in its own way too in 1992 interestingly enough but it, it just in 1992 Morrissey was such an interesting figure because he was still reasonably young at this point but he just did not seem to belong to anything in American pop culture yeah Britain I yep. obviously it was a much different thing because he's slightly ahead of you know Britpop which is very much about trying to re-British British music and then you've got all of these things in Britain, you know, the, the club culture, you've got that baggy movement we were talking about earlier and stuff. And then in some ways, the Smiths were predecessors of that, but also they, it's like they gave over their legacy a little bit. And now Morrissey is just sort of like a figure, right? So he's, I, I always find him interesting because like he'll pop up and most people know who he is, but like he doesn't belong to one exact thing at the same time. Like he's important in the 80s, but he doesn't belong to the 80s. He's nostalgic, but he doesn't belong to the 50s and 60s. He kind of always fits, but but doesn't fit at the yeah. same time. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I'd say thumbs up on this one. I really enjoyed this album. Yeah, he was 33 when this came out. Roughly, yeah, which so. is not yeah. old, mm -hmm, you yeah. know, in the grand no. scheme of things. Yeah. So I guess it was for R.E.M. when they did Automatic for the People, but not for Morrissey. So, yeah. I mean, he's pretty much, I mean, that album came out in 92 too, right? And they were 31. Yeah. So relatively. About the same, a couple years age, old. Yeah, he was yeah. born in 59. Yeah. yeah. Was his, do you know if his like popularity was on the same level as a Solaris as he was, as the Smiths were popular in Britain? Do you think that like carried over or? Um, he was still pretty, I mean, like I said, he was churning out top 10 hits. Yeah. So, and the Smiths were churning out top 10 hits and mm -hmm. you know, his two of his three first solo albums went to number one. I'm pretty sure Vauxhall and I was also a pretty big hit um, yeah. in Britain. Let me take a peek real quick. Cause I have it up right now. It was, uh, uh, the more you ignore me, the closer I get was the biggest charting song in America for him. Um, and it was got to number eight on the UK singles chart. Um, it was also the first Morrissey solo album to hit the top 20 in America. Hmm. Um, so, and yeah, it was, it was still big in Britain. It, yeah. um, it hit number one in Britain on the yes. charts. Hmm. So he's still, you know, from viva hate to, to Vauxhall and i which was 94 was his albums were routinely debuting at number one yeah. whereas on the u.s for example it um it hit 18 and and the smiths and morrissey by the way in their time were always bigger in britain than anywhere else yeah. really he was a slow grower everywhere else which is why you know he's pretty well known in america now but that's a more recent thing you know and obviously yeah. is the mexican following like an asian following and i just think music sort of bent a little bit to where he was from you know mm -hmm. like you, you can't help but look at emo and not think well you know a lot, <laughs> a lot of these guys are cribbing notes while being less interesting right than yeah. what morrissey was For doing sure. so mm -hmm. matt all right you. yeah moving on we've got en vogue uh for the first time with funky divas in the opening montage, you heard a clip from uh, My Lovin', Never Gonna Get It. And now you're gonna hear a clip from Free Your Mind. Okay, so the numbers on Funky Divas by En Vogue. Uh, this comes in at number 2,257 in the 1990s on Best Ever Albums. 
number 226 of, in 1992, number 13,379 of all time. It is En Vogue's highest rated album on best ever albums. It did not make Rolling Stones list, and En Vogue comes in at a whopping 5,361 of overall artist rankings on best ever albums. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, like I said, this is the first time we are covering this group. It's uh, their second album out of a total of seven. Their most recent album is 2018's Electric Cafe. And the genres are uh, that are included with them include uh, R&B, soul, funk, New Jack Swing, pop, hip-hop, and dance, and influenced by such artists as Janet Jackson, the Pointer Sisters, Aretha Franklin, Dionne Warwick, Chaka Khan, and Tony Tony Tony. Uh, other artists that, she is, that they are similar to include TLC, Expose, Mariah Carey, Belle Biv DeVoe, SWV, Jodeci, and Tony Braxton. And artists that uh, they have influenced include Destiny's Child, Ashanti, Brandy, Aaliyah, Monica, and the Spice Girls. Uh, their highest charting single is a, actually a three-way tie between the song that you guys covered, 1990's Hold On, as well as 1992's My Lovin', You're Never Gonna Get It, and 96's Don't, Go, uh, Don't Let Go Love. Um, those all hit number two in the U.S., um, and their highest charting album is a tie between Funky Divas and the following, the follow-up to that, which is EV3. Both of those reached number eight in the U.S., but Funky Divas um, does remain their best-selling album, uh, selling over five million copies worldwide in total. So a little history of the ladies. They were formed in Oakland, California in 1989 by, uh, this was actually kind of like a they were on a, on a mission, a production and songwriting t duo of Denzel Foster and Thomas McElroy. They basically just wanted to create an all-female group, kind of in the tradition of the groups that were you know, very successful back in the 50s and 60s. And they wanted, uh, for, they wanted women that had strong vocals who basically all, all the members could take lead if need, need be. They didn't, like, like uh, we talked about Boys to Men, they didn't want to have like, somebody that was out in front. They wanted them all yeah. to kind of be equal partners. Uh, also, bonus points for attractive and intelligent women. That was something that they wanted as well <laughs> um, to, to, to help them market. And for the auditions, they said approximately 3,000 women showed up for the audition, which I can't imagine that they auditioned three thousand. Like, like the amount of time that that must have taken, just seems ridiculous. But um, but they did hold auditions in 1988, and they finally decided upon four women. Uh, they include Dawn Robinson, Cindy Heron, Maxine Jones, and um, uh, Terry Ellis. So those are the four main uh, members of En Vogue that are on this record. Initially, they called themselves For You, and then Vogue. Um, but they finally settled on En Vogue when they realized another one of those times where they realized that they had a name that somebody else already had taken. So yeah. Vogue was the name of a group already. So they just said En Vogue. So there you go. Um, so Cindy Heron actually ap appeared in several television shows in the late 80s. So she had some acting credits, uh, including The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Full House. And... Um, uh, the song Hold On was awarded a Billboard Music Award for the number one R&B single of that year. And um, I found that this was kind of a funny story. They signed an endorsement uh, deal with Converse, and they also were featured as an opening act on Luther Vandross's 1993 Never Let Me Go tour. And this was mainly a tour of uh, various countries in Europe. And they did not get along with Luther Vandross. And <laughs> by his own admission, I guess he gave an interview in Vibe, 
where he he's basically talking about he and the entourage behind him. They just clashed with members of En Vogue, and he vowed never to work with them again. I, I, I did not see any specifics as to what was the issue behind that, but for whatever reason, En Vogue did not get along with Luther Vandross. So hmm. um, there you go. Uh, they did make several television appearances as a group uh, on In Living Color, A Different World, Rock, and Hanging with Mr. Cooper. Definitely some 90s flashbacks there. And on Rock and Hanging with Mr. Cooper, they also sang the show's theme songs. So they were oh. on, on those shows as well. And then we've got a couple of little, some turnover with some members in March of 97. Don Robinson left the group after having a contractual issue. She couldn't really, they were kind of a stalemate with the contract negotiations and she just decided to, to take off. Uh, they, the group then uh, proceeded as a trio and um, they re-recorded Robinson's vocal parts for that third album, EV3. Uh, and in 2001, Maxine Jones left the group to be uh, with her daughter and she was replaced by singer-songwriter by the name of Amanda Cole. Uh, but she didn't last too long. She left in 2004, and then she was replaced by Rona Bennett. Um, and uh, so basically, over the next couple of years, um, Terry, Ellis, uh, Terry Ellis and Cindy Heron remain. They're basically the only, like, continuous members of the group. Mm -hmm. um, and But throughout the ensuing years, there'd be a combination of Jones, Robinson, and Bennett. They all kind of came and went over the years. So there were some reunions, uh, including in 2008, where the original lineup of En Vogue appeared on the BET Awards, performing a medley with Alicia Keys, SWV, and TLC as a tribute to the girl, the, uh, the girl groups of the 90s. They also made a cameo appearance, appearance in the romantic comedy sequel, Coming to America 2, <laughs> or coming to America, the number two, right? Yeah. So they were in that with Salt and Peppa. Um, Free Your Mind, the song in this album, was inspired by Funkadelic's Free Your Mind and Your Ass Will Follow. I don't remember, <laughs> I don't know that song, but they got uh, inspiration from well, Funkadelic. Well, that's a classic. Yeah. That's a great song. Yeah. And the opening line to that song where he goes, Prejudice, write a song about it, like to hear it, here it go, is from a line originally used by David Allen Greer's character in, uh, in, uh, in Living Color, in the sketch comedy In Living Color. Mm -hmm. Um, they cover the Beatles yesterday on this album. And I, I was trying to find like the number because I know that that song has been covered a, a ton of times. And I, the, the, the only number that I came up with was it's, it's been at least covered 2,200 times, but that was also a, f a figure from like 15 years ago. So <laughs> it's probably way more than that. Um, and uh, the songs on this Hooked on Your Love and Giving Him Something He Can Feel were both actually covers, uh, both written by Curtis Mayfield. And they were originally found on the soundtrack soundtrack to a film, uh, which is 1976's uh, Sparkle. And so I don't know if you ever heard of that movie, John or Josh, but that's uh, that's where those songs were originally. I think uh, that Diana Ross is in that movie, if I recall. Uh, I don't know. You know who's in that movie is uh, the guy who played uh, opposite Don Johnson in Miami Vice, Tubbs. <laughs> oh, uh, I think that guy. Mike, uh, what's his name? White something. Michael White? Michael Mike White? Uh, I don't, no, think, that, I don't, I don't know think that's that. right. Barry, Barry White? I don't know. Anyway, um, that's the, those songs are from that that film. So so there you go. I think this is Philip the only Michael time. Thomas. There you go. There's a mic in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Good job, Josh. Uh, so yeah, so there's uh, Funky Divas, and I think we're going to go with John on this one. Uh, John, what are your thoughts of this record? I just have always found En Vogue to be such a pleasant group they just they have so many songs i love and you know we did hold on already um they're big hit from the first one this one has 
a lot of songs. I, I not just remember, I don't just remember the songs. I remember the videos and they're also very different. Like I, I always as a, like a kid and now just that giving him something he can feel video is such a great video where they're just like in the red dresses on the stage and singing to the crowd and, you know, very classy, but like sexy at the same time. And the song sounds tremendous. It's just, it's a great song. It's once again, it's, it's like a throwback song to sixties and seventies sound. Like you said, it's Curtis Mayfield sound, but it's just such a pleasant song. Then you've got them trotting the same ground that I think Janet Jackson did in black cat, right? This one on like uh free your mind, which might even be a better version mm-hmm. of that song. Another really beautiful video. It's like a fashion shoot kind of with, I remember the, that, that monkey statue is the other thing I always remember from that, from that video. Um, and your love, I'm never going to get it is, is another sort of throwback to sixties girl groups. And, I, I kind of always viewed En Vogue as the, the the 90s version of the Supremes a little bit, just without anybody being the Diana Ross, because I do remember reading that they purposely made it so that they all were equitable, that there was yeah. no lead singer. And when you watch their videos, they all take a part. And in that sense, they're sort of like almost like a hip hop group, right, where each person takes their piece right whether it be like the beastie boys of the wu-tang clan or like a collective right they have a little bit of that feel to them too and um like this album definitely especially the videos and stuff you watch there's a desire to sort of be as inclusive as possible to people listening so they don't get sort of niched as just an r&b act um and i think they were very successful with that and obviously after this album they do, you know, What a Man, which is, they sing the hooks on that, which is a huge song. They, um, uh, uh, Don't Let Go Love comes later, and that's a massive hit, too. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that song, but it's one of the better R&B songs of the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I, I just, I, nothing is being reinvented here because it's it's a continuation of the girl group standard. And I wouldn't say that any of the vocalists are powerhouses necessarily, but when you put them, it's the collective is, is bigger than the individual and you put them all together and the layered vocals, um, the choices in terms of how they sing, they sound similar enough that they can harmonize, but also different enough that there's pieces um, that layer together. So sometimes they sound clearly like four voices and other times they sound like they're all sort of singing the same part, just slightly off, which I also like about it and it's just it it hits all of the the happy parts for me it's it's pleasant songs it's positive it's catchy um it's a variety i I don't love the only argument i have is i don't necessarily love the sketches um in this a little bit i get why they pick them it kind of it's almost gives you a little bit of a feel of the the band a little bit it kind of leads into the the women's yeah. empowerment, like they're not hitting you over the head with it, but definitely we're, you know, sort of like we're strong women not to be, um, not, you know, to intimidate you, but also not to be trifled with kind of, which I, you know, that's, that's a great lane, right? You know, for, uh, for women in a group. Yep. Um, and in that sense, it's kind of like what TLC was sort of doing at the same time, albeit in a different format. So I, I've got more I'll share later, but yeah, this is, uh, this is a, a really a really good album, I think. It, it's a little long at 52 minutes, but I'm starting to learn that every album, for the most part, <laughs> right. is... There's there's an exception yep. this week, which I appreciate that I'll go into, but I just think, like, with the long play here, 
I can't hold it against them because I just a takeaway almost every week is even the albums I love. I'm like, this album could be 10 minutes. And I'm starting to think <laughs> right. that 42 minutes is it's like the my magic number is the magic <laughs> yeah. number Un- that or under. And I think like the best albums sort of are between 35 and 42 minutes. I'm finding. And especially once you get over 50, you don't always necessarily need all that much. So that's my only quibble here, but it's my quibble with lots of albums of this. So yeah, I'd give this a thumbs up. I enjoyed this one. Yeah, well, the CDs are around, are around now, so uh, it's like, oh, we could fit up to 80 yes. minutes worth of music, you know? Let's let's do it, so, yeah. Right, get your money's worth. But I it's suppose. quality. I, I, I don't ever feel like I was being cheated by having eight good songs as opposed to 13, because you're still only getting, at most, eight good songs. Yeah, so. yeah I, I like, you know, I always think of them as the precursor to Destiny's Child. <laughs> you know, you said the Supremes before them, but this is kind of like the the decade before Destiny, or same decade as Destiny's Child, but later on. Anyway, I, I really like this album also. I, I really like the harmonizing, you know. It's a rare thing nowadays that, that people can actually sing that are on their albums and they're not, like, produced to sound like they're actually singing. And I think their voices... Uh, and their talent comes through on this album and, and there's a clarity to their singing. And um, I mean, maybe there's production tricks at this point in time, but I feel like you don't get, you can't find four people in a group nowadays that that can sing like, like they can. So that is just kind of enough for me in a lot of ways at this point in time. It's, it's uh, refreshing in some ways. I like their harmonizing. I like that their personality, um, whether it be real or not, like comes through on this. I, I don't mind the skits because they're not really separate from the music. They're just kind of like intros to some some of the songs and they're not really that many of them. You know, it kind of sets up the song in some ways uh, from, from what I remember. But yeah, it, it just, there's a variety of styles on here. You kind of have a classic, um, you know, pop sound, but then they incorporate some rap. You know, they have rock guitar on Free Your Mind that's very, yeah, you, you said it perfectly. The Black Cat thing with Janet Jackson, that's like really the the closest analogy. Um, Did you watch the sounding. videos, Josh? Because all the videos are very memorable, in my opinion. Like growing up, I remember watching all of them. Yeah, that's the one thing I didn't do, unfortunately, okay. this week for this one. Um, I should have, though. You're right. You you mentioned that I last week. I think you'll enjoy all three of the big hits. Yeah. They all are really good videos in their own way. But I like they have the new Jack Swing sound, too. I think Matt said that in the, the genres and the, um, you know, they kind of have, you know, thematically, they cover all kind of the classic tropes, you know, like a breakup song or like you're too good for this, this man song. You've got love songs. You know, there's a there's a touch of sex um, through that runs throughout in some of the songs or like innuendo. And it's just kind of a fun, bubbly album. Um you're right. It did go a little long. I feel like some of the songs, they just like keep, you know, they got to add another, you know, breakdown of them singing on repeat for, for like the last minute or whatever of, of some of the songs. But uh, it really comes or it really covers the gamut in terms of, um, you know, just fun, bubbly, feel good pop. And I'm right there with you, John. It's just a, it was just a pleasurable listen and something that I didn't have to think too hard about, but was, uh, interesting and like kind of different from today's pop sound that, that, um, was kind of a welcome, uh, welcome relief or welcome, uh, uh, listen. So thumbs up for me on this one. 
Yeah, I think I, I knew the singles. I, I thought I might have known more of the album because I'm pretty sure my sister had this on cassette. Um, but I don't really, aside from the singles, I didn't really recognize any of this. Um, so, but yeah, I'm with you guys. I, I enjoyed this as well. I think, um, you know, I, I think that there's uh, the variety in here is pretty good. Well, first and foremost, I think it's their, I think it's the vocals really, right? I think right. that the harmonies, there's some really great harmonies in here that they're doing. And, um, and so it's, it's clear when you read the bio that like, Oh, we want, you know, this is what we're going for. And then you hear it in the album and it totally makes sense. It's like, yeah, the success you got, they did a great job of finding four women that kind of never really, that sounded great together, whether it was in harmony or in, in sync together, and nobody really stood out. They could all kind of take the lead. So um, I did like the variety on here. I thought a song like Desire was really interesting. It's kind of its own, you know, you know, it's its own thing. It's almost got like a like a reggae kind of thing happening, like a, like a little bit of a psychedelic trippy vibe that's kind of, oh, that was yeah. different, you know. There's horns in that too. Yeah, and um, and just you know, in different than the traditional kind of like R and B genre. But yeah, then you throw in the guitar on something like "Free Your Mind," and you know, you've got some really pretty ballads. Like giving him something he could feel is a great version, great, great cover of that um, of that Aretha Franklin song that that, that Curtis Mayfield wrote. Um, and uh, actually, the sketch I kind of was laughing at the one I think it's before uh, "Give It Up, Turn It Loose," where like. The one girl goes out of harmony. You're like, oh, what's wrong? What's going on? It's like, is it yeah. Kevin? It's Kevin. Oh, oh my God, it's Kevin. And it just it made me laugh because she's like, no, it's not Kevin. So I don't know. It it it, it, it it's it's short lived. It it right. made me chuckle, and then it leads kind of right into the song. Yeah. So um, I I didn't mind that uh, at all. But um, yeah, I could probably agree. It's a little bit long. You could probably chop a couple songs off this. Maybe head a little bit more in the uh, the forty minute realm would would have been better. Um, but yeah, it's it, it, it and then it was a similar reaction because we were talking about Motown Philly earlier. And I was talking about, Oh, there was a part there that I never really heard before mm -hmm. um, that I picked up on this time around. And that happened to me with um, my love and you're never going to get it. Cause there's like a part in there as the, right when they're leading into the chorus, they do this really cool thing where they're like, bum, 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 bum. Right. It's just the way that they, the way that they lead right into that. And I never picked up on that before. It's kind of like a subtle thing in the background. And I was like, Oh, that was great. That was a cool little melodic element that they threw in there that, you know, kind of elevated that part and, you know, um, and made me appreciate that song more. That wasn't so, them singing. That was the music in the background. No, it was them. It was them oh. singing it. They were oh, doing okay. bum, bum. That's, they were making that noise. It was kind Got of like it. the onomatopoeia, but, um, but it was really cool, right? And it was like yeah. a really cool production uh, trick that they did there that um, I never heard before, right? Um, so uh, yeah, so I I enjoyed this. I thought this was a pretty solid effort. You know, if they were kind of saying, oh, this is like similar artists are like TLC, and I remember we cut John and I covered that. I think when you yep. were on hiatus there, Josh, and I think one of the things that we had talked about was, you know, it's a little uneven, right? You could tell it's like a, uh, that was like a little bit more of a debut song that the singles really stood out, but then there were songs in the background, not so much. Um, and I was thinking about that album because, you know, similar time, like all girl group kind of a thing. And this was, this was a more of a mature album than that. This was certainly more of a, of a, um, the deeper cuts I think were more interesting that were better. Um, you know, the De and Denzel Foster and Thomas McElroy who founded the group and put, put them together. They basically wrote, you know, all the songs except the three covers. And, uh, I think that, that 
I never heard of them before. I'm not, I didn't really look into their background specifically and you know, see what else they did. But I, I thought that they did a really good job of the, the songwriting here. And uh, yeah, put together an album as a whole that it totally makes sense why it was huge, right? They, they, you know, the, the, the four women, they were charismatic, they were attractive, they were great vocalists, great songs. Um, and falling light right in line with kind of like nineties R and B, you know, there's, there's a little bit of hip hop on here too. There's some yeah. rapping that's going on. So they're kind of delving in a lot of different areas and it just, it was an interesting listen, right? Albeit a little bit long, but still interesting enough for a, for a thumbs up. And, uh, yeah, I definitely enjoyed it. Nice. Okay. Any final thoughts? I don't Jeff? think so. Just, I just always keep going back to, I'm glad we're, I'm glad in the nineties we are there's the stuff to cover, the the alternative rock, the hip hop that's obvious, the electronic music, but I'm glad we're hitting country a little bit more and I'm glad we're hitting R and B a little bit more because to me they are huge pieces of the nineties equation and just it reminds me not in a sad way or a nostalgic way, but just there just isn't a lot of stuff like this on yeah. the radio anymore and I just don't get it because it was such a staple from like the fifties to like the mid 2000s and I just I find it almost incomprehensible that this type of music couldn't be popular successful again. yeah yeah I don't I know agree. if we've just seeded that lane to, like it still exists but it's a nostalgia lane now so just people just don't do it anymore and just rely on what was made but it's baffling to me because this is like effortlessly enjoyable music and I mean yeah. it just was you know for talented like sexy women and just it just seems like it's such a clearly easy yeah. um package for anybody who wants to kind of try it again and that's not to minimize what they did because it's hard to find four women that can sing right. like this and mm -hmm. have all the package but um yeah, and yeah it's take away. get along with each other <laughs> Yeah, I didn't really, like, there wasn't a whole lot of animosity or anything like that. Yeah. It was just like that, the one con contractual thing. But then she ended up coming back for a period of time. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but I would also say that this is, I, I don't know, this is probably better than 2257 of the night of the decade. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you oh, know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> like, and it's, yeah. And also, like, Josh, uh, I'll be interested. Check out those three videos. They're all there. I think you'll appreciate them as pieces of filmmaking too yeah. because they're all very interesting choices and like i said i the i think the the uh free your mind video is one of the better videos of the 90s it's very memorable and uh i i always remember giving him something he can feel because it's kind of a funny video it's basically them in red dresses performing and a, a bunch of men like kind of like you know crossing their legs and like looking like you know taking it back taking dip deep sips of water taking off their <laughs> wedding rings and stuff it's kind of like a it's pretty funny it's, it's <laughs> a it's a good video yeah so nice well all right speak, speaking of country as you mm -hmm. mentioned yeah iris De iris dement and her uh, uh debut album we're gonna cover right here but probably uh first i should probably tell you uh what is going to be in each of the things so i know that i picked um our town for montage and i think mm -hmm. I ended up going with When Love Was Young for right now, so let's give it a little bit of a listen. That I'd be here with you wishing I was free. I never dreamed today would come when love was young. There we go. So uh, a little bit of a deep cut there for you, but... Uh, <laughs> 
Oh, let what me get some numbers that? in here, John. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, Infamous Angel by Iris Demand comes in at number 2,085 in the 1990s on Best Ever Albums, number 213 in 1992, number 12,238 of all time. It is Iris Demand's highest-rated album on Best Ever Albums. Did not make Rolling Stones' list, and Iris Demand comes in at number 3,646 overall artists on Best Ever Albums uh, artist rankings. So, yeah, this is album number one of seven total for uh, Iris Dement. So to give you an idea, from 1992. So this starts her career. Uh, in terms of artists that are listed as being similar to her, I don't think there's going to be some surprises. Uh, some names that might be familiar to you are Emmy Lou Harris, Lucinda Williams, Patsy Cline, uh, someone we haven't covered yet, but we will be covering, uh, Jillian Welch down the road. Uh, Roseanne Cash and uh, Mary Chapin Carpenter, who was a country artist uh, around this time, are considered their influences. Uh, in terms of females, we're looking at, as we mentioned before, uh, Patsy Cline. Uh, actually, Suzanne Vega is listed as an influence, which is interesting. Emmy Lou Harris. And then on the male side of things, uh, uh, someone who is a huge champion for her, John Prine, um, which makes sense when you think about it, Graham Parsons. And the name that I wrote down, as the thing that popped out to me, uh, Towns Van Zant from all the way back in episode number one, and followed by people like we met the aforementioned Jillian Welch uh, and Ryan Adams were some people that um, were influenced uh, in terms of this uh, lane. So Iris DeMint, interesting career. Um, she was born in Arkansas, a town called Paragould, Arkansas, on January 5th, 1961, which makes her 63 right now. Uh, I should mention that the genres she's considered to be a part of are country folk, Americana, folk, alternative country, and gospel. Uh, I think some of them more so on this one um, than others, and then later I think some of those other genres might, like for example the alt-country label, um, was not as present here, but mm -hmm. comes later. So she is the 14th and youngest child of Whoa. Pat Dement and Flora May. Jeez. Flora May, despite having 14 kids, lived to the ripe old age of 93 wow, and died in crap. 2011. So she's on this album, but 93. Her father, uh, for living in rural uh, Arkansas, you figure without maybe the best healthcare and stuff. He did pretty well for himself too, because he lived from 1910 to 1992, wow. which I believe makes him, is that 82? I believe he was. So mm -hmm. good um, math, good, John. Yeah. Good genes there. Um, uh, her mom had wanted to start a singing career, but I'm guessing those 14 year old kids, <laughs> uh, 14 kids are such a 14, 14 kids. Puts a damper on a little yeah. bit in terms of doing that. They said the, when I read it, it was like, the, the plans went on hold when she got married, but I'm guessing that shortly after getting married, yeah, which, really. I don't know when that would have been, but it was a Pentecostal household. So I'm guessing surprisingly young would be my <laughs> guess in terms of where it is. Uh, I do think it's interesting that like, despite being Pentecostal, her family moved from Arkansas to, to Los Angeles oh, when weird. she was three years old, which you don't think of as being a move that many people make. Um, yeah. And so growing up, there were two types of music uh, that were in, around the house all the time. Do you guys want to take a guess as to what those two types of music were? Country and Western. Yes. Nope, nope. <laughs> gospel. Country is correct. Gospel is the other, <laughs> yes. yes. Country and gospel, my friend. That so a, that's a that. line from something. I listened to, all, to, to both the musics, country and Western. <laughs> yes, that's a it was from a movie or something. Right there, yeah. Yeah. No, that's, a, that's an old saying, yeah. Um, so singing, uh, she was singing at age five as one of the Little Dement Sisters. 
Um, and her first time uh, performing, she actually forgot her words. Uh, the song which caused her to avoid performing in public for a long time. So, and then it's really interesting because then she kind of just lives a normal life, right? She graduates high school. She goes to Kansas City to attend college from LA. She's waitressing, she's typing. And then um, she just at age 25 um, is driving through a Midwestern town. And I'm sure there's more to it than this, but like I searched around to see, but it sort of was like normal life, then 25 happens. And what ends up happening is she's driving through a Midwestern town. She decides to write down some stuff. She writes the song Our Town, she says, with little to no revisions and begins realizing, "Ah, I think I might have a talent for writing songs. So she begins to do open mic nights and actually moves to Nashville in 1988 after doing this. Um, So... In 1988, okay, just to, to take you back, she was born in 61, so she was 27 when she makes that move, right? So at 25, mm-hmm. she writes Our Town. She uh, works with a producer named Jim Rooney, and uh, they end up getting a uh, record contract, and she makes her debut at the age of 31. So I immediately was trying to think, like, other artists that have, like, late-arriving careers, and the person who came to mind uh, initially was Bill Withers, right, was the other guy we talked about having, like, a late start. He had to be, mm-hmm. like, an army career and then kind of realized, oh, I could do this singing thing and kind of well, yeah, like to it. Lucinda Williams, too, mm-hmm. kind of. Or, Lucinda but, Williams yeah. a little bit, but she was, like, a lifer in terms of doing stuff. She just didn't hit, yeah. yeah. Towns Van Zant was another guy who kind of, like, lived a life and didn't do it. That's why he came to mind as well. So anyway, this is her debut, Infamous Angel, and uh, it was pretty much universally acclaimed. Um, It did not get really any support from country radio at all, um, which is kind of amazing in some ways. But I guess where country was at in 1992, yeah, kind of like what we heard with Lucinda Williams or um, what was the album, Matt, that you and I did, uh, Male Singer from 88, um, Steve Earle. Mm-hmm. Right, yes. another one that you would think mm-hmm. it would get more play, but it wasn't. But there, there were a lot of artists floating around in country that seemed like they should have been played, but country just didn't have a space for them, I think, at this point. Or yeah. at least mainstream country didn't. And so almost like alternative rock or alternative music or indie music, right, eventually ends up adopting all of these people, hmm. right, and creating a new lane of country throughout the 90s, well, which it we're going to fu- see a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, it's kind of one of those things that goes back to like when the birds had Graham Parsons and they like, you know, the country, the country uh, fans and, you know, uh, population didn't want to accept them as country and the rock fans didn't but want to accept were, them as rock, you know, either. But like but they, they were interlopers. They weren't from there. This woman's from rural. Correct. Arkansas That's true. And yep, a Pentecostal yeah. household writing about rural. Uh, I'll save some of that for later because mm-hmm. I, I have some thoughts on that. But, you know, what I'm saying like Graham Parsons and the birds were like, here's all these people from like California like and stuff and they're doing our music right like you don't even have that here this is sort of like yeah so as does by the way like steve earl and stuff there like they i think it's kind of like a, a little's your political leanings i think at that time too i think is is a thing that stands out with that hmm. but anyway um i've got a lot to to say about this album that will tie into parts of the bio so i'm going to hold off on talking about it till my uh time discussing it i'm gonna give uh i think it's it just matt gets the first take on this one i think so yeah. matt have at it yeah i this this would have 
if I, if anybody here that might have heard of this before, it probably would have been me. And yeah, I got nothing. This was not. I I never heard of her before. Um, and uh, so yeah, really, it's easy for me to fall right in right in step with this. Um, uh, you know, musically, it's yeah, certainly it's country. Yeah, it's get, definitely getting some uh, uh, um, a little reminiscent of like the Dolly Parton and the Loretta Lynn mm -hmm. records that we covered way back when. And um, I did like her voice. I think Sherry was a little put off by her voice, and so I, I'm like, I kind of get that right. There's a little bit of a there's not a yarl with her voice. We keep talking about that before, but there is like a there's an interesting vibrato that's a little it's like an bit, Appalachia to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little I, I wrote piercing. Warbly. <laughs> warbly? Like a not, yeah. not a yarl. Yeah. Warbly. <laughs> yeah. It's but it's a little bit because of the pitch as well. It's a yeah. little bit there's a twang for sure, but yeah. it's there's a little bit of a piercing nature to it, right? That um my guess is if you don't have, it's one of those things that if you didn't have the mix set up right on your stereo, you know, if there, maybe there was too much treble or not enough bass yeah. or something like that, it would be, it would be more off-putting or it would like make you cringe a little bit if it's, if it's the mix is, is not done well. Um, so I get that, but I, I'm also, I've listened to enough of this stuff that I, you know, I'm, I'm okay with like the, the, the that type of vocal styling for the most part. Um, and I was immediately from the get-go, the very first song, Let the Mystery Be, I'm like, I know this song, right? Because it's the theme song from The Leftovers, from the sec second season oh. of that show. I don't know if guys uh -huh. ever saw that. It's the three-season show on, I did, uh, HBO, yep. on HBO. And, and I was uh, like, and I remember. Famously, our town famously was in the final credits of Northern Exposure, which got it like a oh. exposure there. It's, okay. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. so, um, so, I, so it was kind of interesting. Like right away, I'm like, I did, I had, I'm like, I have no idea who this is. And as soon as the song came on, I was like, that's, that's from that show. And I remember when I saw that show, um, I remember hearing the song and I was like, that's a cool song. I like, I mean, it's not just the music, but it, it fit in really well with the show. Right. Which is about essentially the rapture, a bunch of people like, you know, kind of wondering where everybody went because the mm -hmm. most of the population disappears. And, and the song's all about like, let the mystery be like, this is what, what happens to us when we die essentially. And uh, I, I thought the, the lyrics are clever for that. And for a non-lyrics guy, like throughout this album, I was finding lyrics here and there that were really, that resonated with me more so than others, other artists usually. And I think one of the reasons for that is it's just because of the stripped down nature yeah. of this music and the vocals being so upfront and fairly easy to understand. It's, it's, you know, for, for, it, it's easier for me to, to, to pay attention to lyrics there. Um, so I like that. I liked our town a lot. That was a great little, little ditty, you know, kind of, uh, I guess it's more of the upbeat type of song, right? Uh, like a campfire kind of song that a bunch of people would kind of like yeah. at least musically get down with. But then there's also more more somber songs and particularly After You're Gone. And that was a song I was listening to that for the first time in the car. And it was one of those things I was kind of like drifting off my attention, kind of going to and from, you know, from music to driving and just whatever my thoughts were. And, um, and like towards the end, I'm kind of like, I think this is might be, this might be something I want to pay attention to more. So I re I, I started the track over again and I was like, definitely focusing on the lyrics. And I just, I, it was one of those moments where it just hit me in a way that like, I got, a, I got a little emotional as like a mm. little teary eyed actually, which, mm -hmm. which doesn't really happen a whole lot with me with music, but it's basically, a, it's a, it's a love song about losing, you know, a, a loved one, right. Um, whoever that might be. And it's just about, you know you know, how you're still going to have laughter after they're gone, but you know, you, you've memorized every line on their face and, you know, nothing's going to take that away. And the, and, and the stories that it tells, whatever the, the, just the way that that, the way that she strung the lyrics together was just, 
it just caught me in a moment that that can happen sometimes. And I was like, man, that was great. That was a really, you know, powerful song. So I can, the lyrics can hit me in a way that gets me to that point. It can happen. It's rare, but it happened here. And, um, and yeah, this is, look, again, this is a timeless, this is one of the oldest genres that we're probably, you know, ever going to hear on this. I mean, this goes way, way back to, you know, yeah. this is Americana, right? The beginnings of, uh, of music in, in this country and, you know, country music, um, gospel for sure as well. So, uh, so it's nothing new. Um, and it's, it's, it's in a sense, it's very timeless, even though it's very old, but you still can do music like this today, whether it's like kind of a country element, uh, a, it's bluegrass too. I was getting a little, there's a little bit of bluegrass, um, to this, not, not full blown bluegrass, but enough to kind of be in that vein as well. And, uh, yeah, it's like a palate cleanser. Like I can always, I can always come back to this for artists that I, even that I don't know, um, and just be, and just be with it. So yeah, it's, it's hard for me not to like something like this. It's just very, and it's at, it's at a good length, right? 38, 28, John, I think is the, yeah. the length that I'm seeing here. So that fits into your 40, your 35 Correct. to 42, uh, you know, window. It is the of, one of, album this week that does, <laughs> yep. although the Morrissey album comes close as well. Yeah. It, yeah, that wasn't, yes, that wasn't, I think that was closer. Yeah. A little about 40 or so. So yeah. Um, never heard of her would definitely check out some of her other stuff. Uh, thumbs up for me for sure. Yeah. It's, it's crazy how like out of time this album feels like it reminds me of the music when they did Oh Brother Where Art Thou. It's kind yes. of like yep. this music from a bygone era type of, you know, early American South, southern music and that's what it could be I, I i would never been able to place this from 92 i would have been like yeah. okay it could have been from the 70s or from the 30s or this could have come out yesterday as well <laughs> yeah, too yeah. right you know exactly it's, that's yeah um so i guess that's a testament to the um the the longevity of or the kind of you know the mass appeal or or the way that this music is can just keep going and I think she's a really good songwriter. There's a, you know, the the song titles kind of give a hint as to the wordplay or the kind of turn of phrase that she has in them. Um, you know, Hotter Than Mojave In My Heart or 50 Miles of Elbow Room. You know, they're just infamous angel. That's, you know, that's not a phrase or something that you hear every day. And so it kind of makes you take notice. Um I get what you're saying about the voice, Matt. I kind of kind of went back and forth on whether or not I was annoyed by it or, or, or you know, it bothered me. Um, I think I just ended up on the side of yeah, I, I liked it overall. Uh, mm-hmm. She's definitely got the southern twang. I feel like that doesn't always um, apply in country music or uh, you don't always hear that nowadays. I think people try and get rid of their accents for a, a lot of music, but I guess I would describe this as like rustic or quaint type of country music. It's got this, this, uh, you know, down home feel Appalachian, you know, deep South type of sound and feel to it. And it was, you know, it doesn't reinvent the wheel, but it, it does what it does really well. We've said that about other albums in this decade and past decades, you know, I like the stripped down nature of it. It's basically her and acoustic. And then I think there's a kind of multiple musicians throughout, but there's a mandolin um, that definitely is, makes an appearance that is distinct. And I don't know, it's just this classic country feel. And yeah, dobro and fiddles are on this too. Yeah. Yeah. All those kind of classic country instruments. This is all um, well-worn territory, but, but um 
done well. Mama's Opry, that's another kind of one that was a turn of phrase. Um, interesting lyrics, you know, a, a tribute to her mother and her wanting to be famous, like like you mentioned, um, John. But the, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a solid album. It didn't blow me away. I probably should have given it more listens, maybe. It's, it, it wasn't something that kind of like hit me right away in the same way it did for Matt, but but I enjoyed it. It, it was pleasant, and it's just, uh, yeah, I agree. It was a nice kind of change of pace from the rest of the albums um, that we've talked about recently. So I'm going to give it a mild thumbs up. I would say, too, I, I definitely liked her voice better than her mother's, who I believe sang the last song. Oh, yeah. I, was not, I was not a fan of mom's voice. <laughs> Props to her for pumping out 14 kids and living like to in her 70s like so yeah probably. it just it was like you know but it was still touching i guess so mm. yeah yeah i i uh i have a lot of like loose thoughts about this album i i enjoyed this album um i'll give you some of my loose thoughts though number one i i continue to be amazed that an album like this wasn't massive in country music it just seems like it has everything you'd want and if you were in the 70s right or the even the early part of the 80s and mid 80s this is exactly what you would have wanted out of your country but i guess just what country had become by this point she just yeah. was sort of we talked about her being anachronistic in her time and she was anachronistic in that time too not just as classic goes back to the beginnings of americana right like yeah. 20s and 30s type but also anachronistic from even like what country music was in the 60s 70s and parts of the 80s right so it just really interests me and also how this sound is just creeping into the 90s and existed completely out of my frame of reference right at the night like i know like we did the jayhawks and you know we're gonna do all these alt country groups and groups around the side and like lucinda williams we did and steve earl well, and, the, and, and garth the, brooks that was in our first episode this decade right but, but, that, yeah. but garth brooks represents like what i was saying that she's yeah right not that she's the, not so like yeah. I want to draw a distinction between Garth Brooks mm -hmm. and like all of what I was just mentioning because what I'm saying is there's this whole like genre of country music that by the time the 2000s hits, I'm deeply familiar with it. It feels like it's influencing everything. And then obviously by the time the 2010s happens, you've got like tons of this Americana-y type stuff mm -hmm. with country like there and being on TV, sh you know, commercials like the Lumineers and... Mumford and Sons and all that mm -hmm. stuff like variations of this that I am not as much of a fan of of this so I would just that's the first thing that comes to mind second is it's really interesting to listen to an album that I think has really well written songs but also that I do not relate to any of them it's like listening to someone else's story that I, I like these songs in the way that you read a book about someone that's not like you at all and you're like, oh, it's interesting. Let me tell you about your story. So I think these stories are very touching, and it, it obviously moved even our non-lyrics guy, right? It's Matt, and he was able to connect with it. But all of these songs, the is not the right word to use, voyeur, because that's not what it is. But it's like taking a slice of life, like, oh, yep. like this is rural life. And I quickly realized, like, yeah, I obviously can't connect with rural life because I've never lived in a rural area, nor you know, like at any point. Right. And, and yeah. honestly would not choose to live in a rural area, not in a negative way, but just it's the things that appeal right about that are not mine. But I was touched by the songs because there's a sincerity. There, there's no um, there's a directness to her writing and a mm -hmm. sincerity to it that is very touching. Uh, I mean, it's classic 
what I think of as like country rhyme scheme though. Like I think of country rhyme scheme. It's like you hit your first uh, word, right? And then you give some words and then you hit the thing that sounds like it either. So like, I think of like our town is a good example of that. It's like, you know, kiss a goodbye, but hold on your lover cause it's bound to die. And you hit the bye and the die. And then it's like, you know, later it's like sun setting down on our town, you know? And it's like, you're hitting, mm-hmm. you're giving like the, the rhyme. Uh, the other one is like, he was, you know, he was the tender and I ordered a beer. It's been 40 years and I'm still sitting here, you know, and it's like, kind of like you hit the thing and it's, and also her pronunciation of, of words are fascinating at different times. Yeah. The one that stood out to me was um, the one I picked, right? When love was young. And sometimes there's these interesting like vowels that either end words or begin words that don't have vowels at the beginning or the end, but a vowel sound comes with, I think is like the Appalachia of it. Um, which takes me into another thought I had, which is Matt last week said he tends to prefer female R&B singers over male ones, mm-hmm. a, a theme that is not the case for me. I'm an equal opportunity R&B guy. But I have learned if you're going to have a twang and sing country, uh, you you might as well be a woman because the, <laughs> the stuff that annoys me with men twang, it doesn't annoy me as much. With I don't know why. Like I can listen to her or the Dixie Chicks or Dolly Parton or Loretta Lynn or I can keep going right and the twanginess does just does not bother me but you give me like the similar like Nashville twang or you know different stuff like that and it just it 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 drives me a different direction it doesn't though drive me as much in in, to distraction in the outlaw country so maybe that's the better parallel for a unique singing voice Hmm. Uh, I also couldn't help but draw a distinction with her voice and Tony Childs who we covered but even though this is an atypical voice I did not mind this at all because I think it meshed with the the theme of the yeah. of the sound and the style of music which sort of always has had a little bit of um that mountain twang to it um so there's another thought final loose thought right here I, having grown up near New York and Philadelphia two places with strong accents I never really thought of music having like New York accents, even like New York artists, right? Mm-hmm. Like like the Velvet Underground or the Ramones. I guess the closest I could get to something sounding like a New Yorker or a Boston person, right, is like hip hop. But we've covered a ton of Boston bands, right? And like you hear like almost no accent. Yeah. We've covered a ton of British bands and some have accents, but they stand out and, and most – have loose, you know, accents yeah. at different times. I find it fascinating when someone can sing with this aggressive of an accent. And I, it's like, it's really like the mountain region and the South is kind of the only place I can think of that has that, the accent carries over to the music in American music. I guess you could say California a little bit. Like we covered like Dennis Wilson, right? And he sound, or the Eagles, right? Sound a little Californian, but can you guys think of like other parts of the country where you're like, oh, that's that sounds like somebody from that part of the thing in the way that you immediately recognize an artist from the coal country or, you know, the, the yeah. upper south. You know what I mean? The Ozarks, you know, mm-hmm. the Appalachia. Not, only when it's like like countries like the best example of that, because that's part of the sound. It's like right. you lean into that accent. But like but... southern rappers sound southern in a way that rappers from other parts of the country don't yeah, like that's true. juvenile and outcast sounds southern but 
if I said to you, like, where's LL Cool J from? You'd be like, well, New York, but could you tell by how he taught? Kind of. Sometimes. Like, and you kind of can tell that, like, yes. Notorious B.I.G. and Nostra. That's what I was saying. It may be hip-hop. Is it? But well, could those, you tell but you're also from New York or the Ramones are from New York? But, you, or, but it's speaking. Yeah. It's like spe- hip-hop's more speaking. It's not really singing, and I think right. that that's probably or a Frank part Sinatra's of the distinction. Frank from New Jersey or Bruce. Would you know Bruce Springsteen was from New Jersey? No, Would but you know, I think like, that that's Dinosaur Jr. or the Pixies were from Boston. No, but I think that that's part of what I'm saying is like there's something. And British bands, I've always thought that with the Beatles, you yeah. know, they have really thick Liverpool accents, and then they right. sing, and most of the time that's it's drowned out. And there's something about when you're singing that kind of normalizes or just puts all the the accents on an even playing field. But country. Is you're leaning into it because that's part of the sound. In hip hop, it's not you're not really singing. It's more there's it's more in line with speaking. So those accents are probably going to be more pronounced. But I think there's something with just a natural singing voice is kind of like it doesn't really come out as much. Even Elvis and even Southern rock bands like the Black Crows and the Kings of Leon and stuff, you can immediately identify them as Southern. Yeah, in the way they sing. Well, it's like it's just just something very like in a way that. You can't like identify Iggy Pop as being from Detroit or Michael Jackson as being from Detroit or Slipknot as being from Iowa. You know, like just these are Metallica, right? As being from Northern California. I don't know what an Iowa accent sounds like. <laughs> right. It's flat, you know, but I yeah. just, you know what I'm saying? It's just, you can't in a way that you can from the South. And mm. I just like listening to this. I'm like, yeah. wow, it really is a unique deal. That's part of the, like Matt, I think Matt said this, it's part of the identity of the music too. Like the, the Southern accent is almost like a welcome addition to country music uh, in some ways. And I think that's, I mean, that may be true in other like countries. Maybe they have different, uh, you know, they have different dialects or, or regional differences. I wonder if that, that same kind of thing applies to their like classic, like folk, folk music of like French well, part or of something. I don't know. Nashville country was you started taking it out of the traditional areas and you either had like upper middle class Southerners or, yeah. um, you know, and eventually it evolved like Canadians and Australians mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and Pennsylvania, mid Pennsylvania people like Taylor Swift, you know I mean? It like became kind of like omnipresent and right. the, the, that Southerness stripped away from it a little bit. Um, so Hmm. Go figure. Yep. So I, I th- those are all my things. That's a lot of loose thoughts. I would say I, I enjoyed this album. It it was a it doesn't in any way scream 1992, but not in a bad way. And I just think it's just a very the best comparison I could compare it to was if you want it, you know, so, like sonically, it sounds similar to like Lucinda Williams or Steve Earle. It's sort of in that lane of what they were doing but i think in terms of the way she's writing songs it so reminded me of towns van zant and john prine mm-hmm. were the two people that i immediately thought of and and when i found out that john prine was someone who championed her and sang with her later in the 90s it's like well yeah that's that, that's clearly we, we covered one of sense. his albums way back when right oh yeah his self-titled yeah yeah yep yeah, and yeah, that's I, I said, like, and both of those I liked, and both of them I liked because yeah. of the plain spokenness of the tales, and uh, mm-hmm. there was a gravitas to simple stories. So, and I, I was getting much more of a uh, my initial reaction was like, oh, Dolly Parton, Loretta Lynn, like that's kind of where I was taken back. Um, yeah, uh, with yeah, there's not as much playful. There's more earnestness certainly than than Dolly Parton's always sort of winking at. I'm, you, ju- like, I'm talking about more kind of, about yeah. the sound, like the sound and the sound, you know, like well, you know, vocally, the, yeah, because she's from coal country, and you know, she and the Ozarks and coal country are kind of yeah. 
an overlap culturally. And so is Loretta Lynn, you know, Cole Myers. So yep. like, they're all sort of have a bad, but, but they wrote very different. So, now I think some of the songs that Iris DeMint writes later are going to be like Loretta Lynn. Cause she starts to write songs about controversy. And there's, there's some subversion on this. There's a lot of songs about religion and not being fully signed up for mm. like the first song in particular, you know, it's kind of, you know, soft, but like, let the mystery be is sort of like people are telling me they're going to come back to the garden and stuff like that. But you know what? I think I'll just let the mystery be a little bit and stuff. Yeah. And um, so I won't say it's subversive, but she's kind of giving you the 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 DNA that like later, her third album in particular is kind of like the the thing where she starts to um, push into some more, I think, like political stuff, which I'm sure did her no favors in terms of uh, a a Nashville, right? Like, um, following, but mm -hmm. in some ways, a little bit of what she trods on. Uh, I, I found a lot of the Dixie chicks narrative in, um, her a little bit, you know what I mean? Where they, they had the bona fides in the background to, to make the music right. And, and came from the area, but then also started to like grow because they existed outside of it a little bit and were able to sort of, transcended as well or, or have nuance i think so yeah yeah but we will get to them much later and maybe we'll compare and contrast them the only the other thing that i picked up on is you're talking about vocal stylings and stuff when they when she sings when our when love was young i thought she sounded a little like barry gibb <laughs> from like early bg stuff she had like that that well, she little, takes a different the, approach i i like that song but like i said there were there were weird beginnings and ends of like if you go back and listen to that listen to the beginning and end of words there's just there's a there's like a uh a rounded off way she says all the different words right I, I described it as like sounding like a vowel on the front end and end because it's like sort of blurry i, I didn't get barry gibb necessarily but the, it's, it's more it's more of the like the way that the voice is trembling or the, the warble like the, the little it, it was a little bit of a a ballad barry gibb from like the early the from that pre-disco bgs hmm. is what i was hearing well, but and i'll end with one last thing did you know the goo goo doll song iris was named after her i did uh, not know that so okay, I did go. not know that. So, mm -hmm. so well, that I is, like that I like this album more than the Goo Goo Dolls. Nice little cherry on the top I there. Do. Yeah, <laughs> I do too. But I figured I'd throw that one in just so you would know. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, you know what other album came out the same year as this album? Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> it did. <laughs> two, two different albums, and uh, it's their debut uh, self-titled album. And in the opening montage, you heard "Killing in the Name," and now you're going to hear "Know Your Enemy." Self-titled debut album, Rage Against the Machine, comes at number 27 in the 1990s on Best Ever Albums. Number two in 1992 second only two in 1992 no. pixie's no. 10 no automatic <laughs> for the people we covered oh. it last week okay. um Got overall ranked overall at number 125 it's their highest rated album on best ever albums it's also the only album that we're covering this week that was in rolling stones list coming at number 221 and rage against the machine is ranked as the number uh, number 149 of overall artist rankings on best ever albums Okay, well, this album came out November 3rd, 1992. Uh, they were formed in 
L.A. in 1991, and the four members are Zach Taylor Roca on vocals, Tom Morello on guitars, Tim Comerford on bass and backing vocals, and Brad Wilk on drums and percussion. They met when Tom Morello's band Lockup broke up, and he was looking to start a new band, and his former drummer of Lockup, John Knox, suggested that De La Roca and Comerford play with him. Um, then Morello contacted Brad Wilk, who had unsuccessfully auditioned for Lockup and uh, also for the band that later became Pearl Jam. So I guess he's lucky he got in this band. Uh, the band is named after the song, a song that De La Roca had written for his hardcore punk band Inside Out. Um, they only have four albums from this one to 2000, and this is the debut. Genres include rap metal, rap rock, alternative metal, hard rock, new metal, heavy metal, every combination of metal and rock that you can think of. <laughs> it's funk metal. All the metal. Uh, all, all the metals. Influences include uh, every person that we've covered on the show. <laughs> Led Zeppelin, <laughs> Bob Dylan, U2, Chili Peppers, Iron Maiden, Black Sabbath, Police, Devo, uh, Public Enemy, Beastie Boys, Clash, Minor Threat, Bad Brains, Dead Kennedys, Black Flag, Sex Pistols, Fugazi, Bad Religion, <laughs> and uh, Leftist Political Ideology. That's another key component uh, to their sound. Um, I would say many bands are similar to them or were influenced by them, uh, followed by a lot of new metal bands that we all know. Limp Bizkit, Slipknot, Linkin Park, System of a Down, Corn, Papa Roach, the list goes on and on. The Highest rated single of theirs is Gorilla Radio, which reached 69 on the Hot 100 in 1999. And both their next two albums, Evil Empire and Battle of Los Angeles, debuted at number one on the Billboard 200. We will also be covering those two albums on the show. Some fun facts. I tried to keep it uh, related to this kind of early period and this album. Um, initial album sales were slow until they started playing Killing in the Name on the radio. And then, which is interesting, what did they just cut out the last like entire part of that? Um, I don't remember, but <laughs> like their their appearance at Lollapalooza in the summer of '93 really boosted their profile and sales, um, you know, from from thousands into hundreds of thousands of copies sold. Um, the album artwork is a cropped photo of the Vietnamese Buddhist monk Thich Quang Duc, uh, who was uh, self-immolated, and. Uh, so that's a memorable, um, you know, provocative cover. The album date release coincided with the 1992 presidential election between Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush. That's funny. The statement in the in the album says no samples, keyboards, or synthesizers were used in the making of this record. And they also name check uh, activists in the liner notes as well, as well as uh, Ian and Alec Mackay from from a minor threat and and uh why am i blanking on there fugazi sorry and uh they, they cover yeah. minor threat on that cover that renegade oh renegades well, yeah. in your eyes yeah yep um i thought this was interesting oh I'll, actually i'll save that fact for later on anyway there's some interesting uh later on stuff in the 2000s that i'll go over so that's it it's a short and sweet bio let's let the music speak for itself I think we're all familiar with this album, probably. And uh, so, John, what, what about Rage this time that you picked up on? Well, I think the thing that stands out to me about Rage isn't necessarily stuff I didn't know, but stuff that's hammered home, which is I think over time, Rage has gotten this 
this idea as they are a hip-hop and metal band, which mm. there's elements of that, don't get me wrong. Listening to this album, and I knew this always, so it wasn't like a revelation stuff. At its core, especially this era of Rage, they're like a hardcore band. Yep. They're just yes. a hardcore band that puts in elements of hip-hop largely through Zach Delaroca. Right, like mm -hmm. it's kind of coming with that sensibility. Not that the other members, I don't think, were hip hop fluent because they certainly were. But this, this is as close to being a hardcore album as you could get without being fully hardcore album. And as such, it's it's an evolution of hardcore um, that that I just I don't think that people process them as like a hardcore band. I think they're only processed as punk because of the left wing messaging, but. At this point in time, I think they share a lot more in common with a punk band that can play heavy like a metal band mm -hmm. than they are like the hip hop oriented band. I, I think really uh, that's the big thing I take away a little bit. The other thing is, and this one did come uh, like about a little bit, how much there isn't anything we've covered that sounds like Rage Against the Machine. And because so many <laughs> bands later try to sound like this, I think you almost lose sight a little bit of like just how much of a pure shot of like adrenaline this it album is. is. It is, yeah. And it is like an, an incredibly um, adrenaline-producing album. Um, and in a different way than just heavy metal is or hip-hop is it's its own sort of alchemy that so many people try to do afterwards to some like to lesser effects in my opinion these guys are sort of in some ways the there's other groups like faith no more and some of what the chili peppers are doing that trod some ground but none of them are this intense the only things we've done that are this intense are hardcore and yep. some of like the death metal that we haven't really covered you know th this is an intensity layer of around like black flag and slayer level yep. intensity i'd mm -hmm. say would be probably the only two groups i could think of we've covered that have this level of intensity it also kind of you can understand while also just laughing hysterically at like how people who wouldn't at all understand the political part of it could somehow just completely turn off that <laughs> right. I mean, we hear Matt all the time say he turns off the lyrics. I'm, I'm sure Matt didn't turn <laughs> off the lyrics here, but like how he says he could turn it off. But it's just the classic story, of course, is like when Paul Ryan's like, this is my like workout stuff. It's so great for that. <laughs> right. and Rage was like appalled by the whole idea. Yeah. And of course, anyone who even has a cursory knowledge of them just has to laugh and go, how the fuck can you possibly right. say that? Like the lack of... But like, it's just, you could see how it could happen though, because yeah, you put this on and one of the listens I did on this, I, you know, I just happened to do when I was beginning to start, you know, working out and yeah, it's like fucking tremendous workout music, <laughs> yeah. but it's more than that too. It it's is, just, yeah. but it's just Zach Delaroca's ability to just like, like blood curdling scream and the repetition, which uh, the repetition mm -hmm works for them because it adds to the intensity and once again that's something very similar to hardcore right there's there's not a there's not a lot of words or a lot going on here they're just giving it to you straight ahead there's a directness just like minor threat or fugazi has right that's yep. just right there you don't have to guess what their politics are their politics are going to be strongly left-wing marginalized i think freedoms about leonard peltier um 
the Native American activist. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- there's uh, the songs about Columbus, you know, very Howard Zinn, you know, like it's different <laughs> stuff. And obviously one of the cool things about Rage Against the Sheet is they never like ran away from it. You know, like they, they no, still they, are yeah. left. Like they didn't become kind of like how people with the dead Kennedys, they like kind of sold out a little bit while keeping some of it. And then other people, you know, they were part of the movement till they weren't, you know, they, they have always lived in it, you know? Yeah. They're like of. Fugazi in that way. Right. Yes. Really lived there. So their once again, ethos. the ties are much stronger to mm-hmm. that end of things. And I just always think it's funny. Like the Paul Ryan thing comes to mind, but I always thought it was funny. The SNL somehow thought it was a good idea to book them <laughs> right. the same night they booked Steve Forbes <laughs> yeah. and didn't think something was going to happen. Just like, there's all these things where like rage against the machine gets put in these things. It's like, well, of course that's what rage against the machine did. There's yeah. no other way this would have ended besides that. And that's why they always toured with hip hop. Cause there's a level of anarchy you were allowed to have in yeah. like that world that like fit perfectly. So I mean, yeah, this is a highly influential album. Um, it's not hard to figure out why this band became huge. Once again, listening to them in the context of where they fall does give a, a level of understanding to just like, wow, there's there is not a lot that did this. And there's a lot later that does. And mm-hmm. until I listen to it at its time... I don't think I quite realize. I, I do only because I remember listening to this album and I remember, true story, I somehow was able to go to a Rage Against the Machine concert at the ripe oh, old nice. age of just turned 13. <laughs> oh, um, wow. So when they were, yeah. That's, nice. That's awesome. We'll, we'll, we'll hold off on that story because I don't know if the Statue of Limitations of how that happened <laughs> were there, but we'll just say I saw them in Philadelphia um, at a club I never should have been in. And um, yeah, it was fucking so great. So just like, this I, album had come out? Yes. Okay. And still, like, they were sort of, like, I mean, this album didn't break Rage Huge. It was the next one, Evil Empire, that did. Like, uh, this allowed them to go to, like, Lollapalooza, where they got a following, and, you know, they started, and I remember seeing the Freedom video on, um, yeah, that was, that got uh, good rotation. But they're not going to play, like, Killing in the Name of on MTV, because, you know, you're just going to play on the, at that time, fuck you, I, I won't do what you tell me, you know, and, um, you know, even um, Bomb Track, right? Another yep. big hit. That was like a slow grower. It wasn't really in... And it was more the hip-hop world that brought that out. That's the most hip-hop song, I think, of all of them. Uh, but yeah, Freedom, I remember seeing on there. But it was kind of like, whoa, this is something. But it wasn't played like all the time. So yeah, when I saw them live, it's just like, holy shit. I mean, if you look at clips of them live in 92 and 93, they're shockingly full-formed. Yep. Like at that time, it's kind of amazing to always see a band like we, we looked at those clips of Nirvana, right? They were kind of like that, too. It's like, wow, they they figured it out real quick. Yep. So. um, So, yeah, I'd be easy thumbs up here, like deep, you know, hugely influential album. I've listened to this album a bajillion times. Uh, I can go into the nuts and bolts of the songs, but I, I don't want to over talk. So, yeah, um, I guess it would be uh, Josh, right? No, or Matt, Matt, Matt. Matt yep. Sorry. Well. I uh, actually, I I would I did not listen to this album a bajillion times. I didn't know it oh. that well. Um, I knew so I knew the some of the songs. Oh, wow. I, was, I knew okay. I knew Freedom. I knew Killing. Yeah, and I have I owned Evil Empire and I owned Battle for Los Angeles. I never owned this record. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, it's just one of those things that like it's it's also probably I think I think I enjoyed this more than the other two. It's similar to, like other bands that I've gotten like I like the debut album is supposed to be the best one and then like. Mm. I followed afterwards and never really got down with that first one. So, but anyway, um, uh, yeah, this, um, 
the hardcore thing definitely came to my mind this time. I never really thought of it before, but like listening to it this week, I was like, yeah, this is definitely, um, you know, in that, in that vein. And I've historically talked about, you know, certain bands that we've covered, particularly in like a hardcore, you know, genre or in some of the punk stuff that we've covered that there's just this anger. Right. And, and, um, and I know that certainly, you know, people that are into this type of music go into shows. It's like, they got to get that anger out that entered the mosh pit, like the, mm-hmm. you know, just that energy. And I've never, you know, described myself or thought of myself as someone that was an angry person or that I have this, you know, inner rage that I need to let loose out, you know, let out uh, at a show or whatever. Um, and I still feel that that's very much true. This album, however, if there's going to be some of that coming out, it's going to be from something like this, because this does get me amped like <laughs> yeah, none other. Like this is, and I think a big reason for that, one of my biggest issues with hardcore when we've, when I've heard it, it's, it's, it's very, it's harsh, right? There's just, there, there there's not really a melody there or the, the vocals are such that like, they're so maybe it's a guttural thing and it's just like too much screaming or whatever. And it's just off putting, but this has, this is layered with amazing riffs. Like this is a riff heavy album, both from the Morell's guitar and Comerford's bass. That's just like infectious it's just like and it and it grabs you right away with bomb track killing in the name is just oh my god the energy like the the way that it builds and then releases mm-hmm. it's it's fantastic it's like textbook you know uh you know it's songwriting to to build to this uh, this this release of energy right that they just do so so well um well and, and there's story cr- matt when we yeah. would go my friends and i would go to the beach right and we would um be ready to go out for the night we would always put on this album for a couple of things and just yeah, have your beer before you go out. You know what I mean? And just fucking scream at <laughs> yes. the top of to set the tone. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's, it, it's very much, I can get to that point with an album like this. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yes, there's, there's, there is that hip hop element in here. There is, uh, there's a metal element. Like there's, what is it? Um, know your enemy has a guitar riff on there. I'm like, that's like, yeah, that is like a speed metal. That's like yeah. a Metallica type riff. And you're like, yeah, right. And it's just the riffs are great. Like these are fantastic riffs. And and Zach Del Roca sounds like Judas Priest is who that. Yeah, that's okay. Yes, yes. And Zach Del Roca does have a like this. This guy is is letting it all out, but. It's tempered with, he's not doing it all the time. And it's just, I don't know how else to describe it. It's just, it's a scream that I can get down to that is not off-putting. And it fits so well with the music that's being played behind it. Um, also, totally like the Iris Dement album that we just covered, uh, th- th- there was a song on here that immediately I knew what it was from. And that's Wake Up. It's the from closing Matrix. song from The yeah. Matrix. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was like, right, I knew that song, but I yeah. forgot that I knew that song. So it kind of came back here and stuff. So great opening. That that another great guitar riff opening there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, just really solid. Like it's it's a very easy thing for me to to get into. And and yes, the and this is a singular band. I do remember that they put that in the liner notes that all the instruments on here are just the guitar, bass, drums, and and vocals. Mm-hmm. And they're mostly putting that in there because of what Morello is doing with the guitar, because yep. he he gets his guitar to sound like a harmonica or like a synthesizer or just anything but a guitar, right? And you're like, how is that? You know, there's a couple of points in here where you're like, I'm like, I've heard that sound before, but it's it's usually from a synth or something like that, right? And mm-hmm. he's 
he has found a way to manipulate the guitar or the the amp, whatever he's playing it with, that he's kind of creating it as his own sound. That's very distinctly Tom Morello. It's like how any other guitar, like the Edge, right? The Edge is yeah. known for probably a difference there is probably Morello's a little bit more of a virtuoso guitar player, but the, but the edge is just about effects and sound sonic kind of thing and making his own sound. And Morello is certainly that like, it's just, he does something that nobody else has really, that, that I've ever really heard do before. So you've got that. Uh, but then, but then the, 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 the rhythm section behind it's great too. And it just comes together as this like really, yeah, there's rage, right? That the name is very, uh, the name is very apropos, and um, so many. And but the riffs, I think, is what really stands out as being something that okay, you take a riff like that, that's that catchy, you put that much energy behind it, you put the vocals and the passion of a Zach Delaroca, the unique stylings of a guitar player like Tom Morello, and yeah, as I'm driving, I'm screaming along too. Like there's, I, I let <laughs> let something out while I was, I was yeah. like, wow, I did, you know, I could never <laughs> do that, you know, um, and uh, so and, and you can see this laying the groundwork for so much that came after it for better or for worse probably it's like similar to we, we talked about this i think with alice in chains right that's yeah. like there was some good that came out of that but there was a lot of bad but um but that's okay because you still have the at the ground floor you have something like this right. which is just very singular right and unique and uh so yeah big yeah big thumbs up yeah preaching to the choir rage is probably one of my favorite bands of the 90s and i've listened to this album dozens of times and it, it never gets old uh, i love de la roca's voice like you guys said it's like a power the power and the rage of of his politics and you know the the situation um of of society comes through in his singing um i love tom morello's guitar i've always i I pick a, I, every song, his guitar playing sounds different every time. And there's always something different to pick up when I listen to him play. Um, I picked up some of the, I guess one of the main takeaways I have with Rage is like, has there, I can't think of another band that's so blatantly political that's also extremely popular. Um, we've talked about some hardcore bands that have politics yeah. in them and stuff, but mm -hmm. that does not exist anymore. And people would be, you know, i.e. Republicans would be having a field day if there was a band like this that was like so, so, um, you know, leftist leaning or just kind of anti-authority, anti-government yeah. type of type of thing. Um, yeah, anarchists. Well, this type of yeah. left doesn't really exist anymore. Right. It's been so thoroughly chased out of the mainstream. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? That you just don't really... As much right. as you hear about this, it's like Antifa, which people can't even figure out if it's right. actually a real thing. You know what I yes. mean? Or just a fake boogeyman. So, yep. yeah. Yeah. But so like pro kind of like pro union, pro worker, um, you know, the the I, we it would be a whole other discussion talking about like kind of the political nature of rage. But uh, I feel like the lyrics and they're kind of like simplistic in a way you know there there's not a lot of words there's only like eight lines in killing in the name that are like repeated yes he <laughs> repeats a lot you're right in yes different yep. in different um kind of uh you know formations but but still it it's effective and i feel like well it works because the the whole idea is that these killings of pol police killings which of course was not a thing many people were talking about yes. besides like ice tea right? <laughs> right and like hip-hop artists right yep. that the idea is that they just keep happening right yep. so the the repetition works yeah but it but hit that structure is used throughout the album in different songs and in, in later albums and i think it's it's an effective way to get your message across if you can sing along. I think, like you said, Matt, I think it comes through, like it starts to 
permeate in your head when you can like sing along to the lyrics uh, mm-hmm. in such a simplistic way. It and, takes it takes and over and you like not it, like it's either. Um, yeah, it yeah. like takes over you. It's like it's like all of a sudden it's like I'm being I'm being like I I can't help myself but just like get engaged with this music in yep. a way that like very few other artists or or songs can. Yeah, um, it's yeah, it's it's crazy. And um, some other interesting things. I picked up kind of the funk nature and like take the power back. Mm -hmm. I guess public enemy would be kind of a close uh, proximity to the political message. Um, And, and that song reminded me of them as well. And um, just like uh, there's a little guitar interlude and settle for nothing. That's really interesting that I, that I noticed this time. Know your enemy has the, the, the break where they're like background singers are saying stuff and Maynard James Keenan's on that. He played, he's in the backing vocals on that. That's, I thought that was interesting of tool and, and, um, and, uh, other bands and, um, and just, uh, yeah, just the power, the energy. I've always responded to that. Uh, it just rises above everything else. All other bands. Um, you know, we said that other bands have mimicked or imitated them, not on the political level, maybe just in the sound. Um, and, and they're inferior as a result, in my opinion. Um, I think they're a singular band. They did make the Rock yeah. and Roll Hall of Fame last year. And uh, this is this is an elite level album for me in the 90s. So um, thumbs up. All right. Yep. I mean, there's not there's not much else to say. I mean, nope. that's a it's go a listen one. to the album <laughs> if you haven't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're the biggest fan of rage against the machine of all of us josh but i think yep. we're all we're all fond of the band. and we're going to be covering the next two yep evil empire and um, battle of los angeles yep yep that's crazy they only have four but the, it's another one of those bands that well, did so much with, album, with so little so they really only mm-hmm. have three yeah right yep. but another another band that did or artist that did so much with so in, in yep. such a short period of time or such a little output you know yep definitely Absolutely. well with that being said let's talk about our output for next week Josh, you want to do the, let's have you do the albums and Matt, you'll do the singles. So what albums are we covering next week? All right. We're covering Jawbreaker with Bivouac, Tori Amos, Little Earthquakes, Arrested Development with three years, five months, and two days in the life of Ellipses, and Pavement, Slanted and Enchanted, uh, all from 1992. We're firmly in 92 decade or year. And uh, I am not familiar with any of these albums, so that will be... Um, fun, fun to listen to. There you go. And our singles for next week will be Joyride by Roxette, People Are Still Having Sex by Latour, <laughs> uh, Save the Best for Last by Vanessa Williams. I believe she was a uh, Miss America. Miss America. She was. Yeah. Yeah. Script of the it. Crown for yes, posing indeed. for Playboy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's right. No, yes. No, was it Playboy or Penthouse? I can't remember. Penthouse, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. One of those things. Yep. Yeah. Uh, oh, old favorite here, To Be With You by Mr. Big. <laughs> And finally, ha, huh, you can't play with my yo-yo by yo-yo. <laughs> I don't know that song. I don't know that yo-yo, one either, but there you yo-yo go. Yo-yo was on an album we covered before, right? Um, I'm trying to remember which album. Yo-yo Ma? Yo-yo was on. No, I, I'll, I'll think about it. But yo-yo did the female part. Was it? It was uh, Ice-T. Oh. She sang the female oh, part on right. the Ice-T album. Yep. Okay. So, or it's a rap, the female part. So I said. Okay. Any final thoughts before we sign off, guys? Nope. Okay, (laughs) so I'll sign off. So for Josh and Matt, this is John. Thanks so much for listening. Coming to Stacks can be found on 13 different platforms. Viewer feedback can be sent to combingthestacks at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter 
at Combing the, and on YouTube by searching for Combing the Stacks and throwing us a follow.